You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hello, I'm Dan Aykroyd, and welcome to this fine motion picture emporium. It's nice to know you're here tonight, rather than at home shoving cheap little plastic cartridges into cheap imported video systems that keep you and your family hostage in your own home or apartment. Now, let's face it, big screen entertainment is what it's all about. We've enjoyed it for years. Movies are great. There's nothing like a good movie, or even a bad one for that matter. Remember the classics, though, such as Dr. No. Dr. Zhivago. Now at last, Dr. Detroit. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Clifford Scriblow never expected to be anything but a humble scholar. Nothing's going to change my life. My life is just set. Until one night, he came upon four ladies in distress. Oh, yeah! And to protect their honor, uphold the law. Step aside, last year, you'll be eating my food. And fight for the American way. He became the fancy-dressing, flashy-dancing, death-defying, jacuzzi-dipping... Don't forget power walking, systems analysis, rock climbing. Dynamic defender of decency. Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit. Say what? Dr. Detroit. I can feel my hair grow. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also with this week is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey, Mike. Hi. This week we are looking at the 1983 film from director Michael Pressman, Dr. Detroit. The film stars Dan Aykroyd as Clifford Scridlow, a mild-mannered professor who not only becomes a pimp, but a super pimp known as the titular Dr. Detroit, a wild-haired, metal-handed maniac who protects his stable of eclectic women from Mom and her band of bald-headed limo drivers. We're going to be getting to some spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Dr. Detroit, turn off the podcast before we ruin this movie for you, and you have to post a nasty tweet about how your life was negatively affected by the ending of Dr. Detroit coming to light. Now, Aaron, when was the first time that you saw Dr. Detroit, and what did you think? Well, A, I'm really bummed you just cruised by my awesome reimagining of that voice, but... Well, I was hoping you were going to do the whole rest of the show in that voice. Yeah, I can't... I don't know how (laughs) Aykroyd did it to that whole movie. My Ah, God. ah, I first saw it when I was a kid. I saw it probably 83, so... To, right when it came on HBO, when it first came on, I was a huge Aykroyd fan, and I don't know, Blues Brothers probably, Saturday Night Live, that whole thing. And I it came on, and it did that whole HBO thing where it would come on late at night. I would stay up late, so when it came on, I could watch it, and I could 
get into the groove, so to speak, with that song and James Brown. And I love it. I, I know everybody else is probably going to, this movie sucks. I love this movie to no end. Just love it. Actually, much like Aaron, um, I first saw it when I was a kid, little kid growing up in the 80s. So I think I rented it. The box art is something you can never forget. It's so 80s. You've got the <laughs> bright, bright yellow, Ackroyd. And I knew that Devo had done a song for it. And of course, I have been a true blue Devo fan uh, almost since inception. <laughs> so, um, As a kid, I thought it was a lot of fun. I don't think it, it gelled with me as much as it did with Aaron. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was, it was interesting to revisit recently for this podcast as, you know, seeing it through adult eyes. It's sort of like it's a hot mess in parts, but it's so colorful. And, you know, it's an interesting film. Plus, I mean, Devo. Much like you, Aaron, I used to watch this on HBO all the time. And as a kid, I absolutely loved this movie. I mean, it had so many great things going for it. Dan Aykroyd, like you said, this was the first movie or the the movie that he made after Neighbors, which I need to go back and revisit one of these days. Seeing it when I was younger and expecting almost like a Blues Brothers 2, that's Blues Brothers 2 and not Blues Brothers 2000, I was expecting kind of that same magic that had happened before and was really kind of taken aback by that movie. Again, maybe seeing it now, I would uh, have fresh new uh, appreciating eyes for it. But uh, Dr. Detroit, wow, it just blew me away. And to have, you know, Dr. Johnny Fever in it, to have uh, all of these beautiful women in there, especially the lady who is in Bosom Buddies. I mean, this movie was just fantastic. And so many great quotable lines, especially Dr. Detroit talking about ripping off mom's head and shitting out her neck. I was pretty much just scandalized by that when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. But this movie was just awe-inspiring to me, and I had never seen anything like it. Now, looking back so many years later, maybe it's not so awe-inspiring, but I still have a very warm place in my heart for Dr. Detroit. It is still awe-inspiring. You shush. It's amazing. (laughs) Aaron, this is why you're always a pleasure. Because anybody that refers to Dr. Detroit is awe-inspiring is someone I must know. (laughs) I will tell you, when I was 11, 12, whatever it was when I first saw it, I didn't know what a prostitute was, probably. I just knew these were beautiful women. You know, I'm probably near puberty, so I appreciate women. But I don't know what a prostitute really is. So I'm just like, Dan Aykroyd is this geek. He's a geek. And which I was kind of a geek. And these gorgeous women come to, all right, (laughs) I I have nicer clothes now. Um, But you have these beautiful women that really gravitated toward him. And he ended up being this really cool character who took on mom slash the mob, a really, really minimal Chicago mob. They got two henchmen. (laughs) And (laughs) it was just a character you just, I just related to because, okay, the geek gets the beautiful women. He gets to be cool. He's the life of the party. It just, everything clicked for me at that age. I think. Scridlo gets the women. I mean, the beginning of this movie is just so fantastic. That Devo song is just so good. I mean, I had the 45 of that song when I was a kid, and I just practically wore out the vinyl because it was just on constant rotation. It just wonderful, wonderful opening song. And just him there in those short shorts with those amazing glasses with the rearview mirrors on them and just fast walking through Chicago. I mean, again, Chicago, Dan Aykroyd. I'm 
I'm thinking Blues Brothers, and I'm just like, yes, I am signed up for this. And it it never disappoints. The opening of this film just always – I'm so happy whenever I watch it. It's almost iconic because one of the first images I think of when I think of this film is that intro with that song. And in fact, anytime I I speed walk or power walk the track at my local gym, I always try to channel my own inner – Clifford Scridlow. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. This is true too. And I have Devo on my iPod, so it's not it's not too uh I've got I've got all the elements except I have yet to become a, a super pimp, so sorry. <laughs> there is still time. You could do an entire podcast just on those shorts, man, because they are fantastic. <laughs> and yeah. everybody's so impressed with his legs. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're like, ooh, he's got good legs for a geek and, you know, with his little nut hugger shorts and just, you know, power, <laughs> power walking. And actually, what's funny about that Devo song, because um, there's a great music video that was made for it that's so, just so cute and so Devo with Mark Mothersbaugh in this sort of weird inflatable black rubber fetish type suit and that video is finally out on dvd because when they released the complete truth about de-evolution on dvd which is like a comp of their videos and originally in 2003 it did not have this video and i was very bummed because that's what i bought and i was like oh god where's the dr detroit video and um but it's been re-released in 2013 by mvd so anybody wanting this this goodness on dvd you can go get it i can tell you it's not on the actual dr detroit dvd because i own it and it's not there very sad. Now, is there any sort of like audio commentary on the Dr. No, Detroit disc? There's nothing. This podcast will serve to be the the supplemental material that you wanted. Let me yeah, right. <laughs> Let me ask you a legitimate question. Tell me it wouldn't be fantastic to have Dan Aykroyd and maybe even his wife, I mean, cuz he he married Donna Dixon. You know, have those two on there and the entire commentary, he just yeah, I see an addition here. You know, he just does that through the whole movie. I would I would pay $45 for that. Man, you're a stronger man than me, Gunga Den. I don't know if I could. Five uh. minutes of that would be funny. I think an hour and a half, I might be clawing my face off. <laughs> <laughs> but I respect it. Yeah. Well, if anybody does the a blue a Blu-ray release of this, I think they should have you moderate, Aaron, because you love oh. this film. You love this film probably more than some of the people that made it, I would venture to say. Probably. Dan Aykroyd himself is like, man, I don't even like that movie that much. Wow. Uh, oh, he's done way worse than Dodger Detroit. That man better not hate on this movie. Okay. We'll talk about nothing but trouble later on. Such a great intro. And plus, I love that, you know, you really like each girl and, you know, they got some great actresses to play them, especially Fran Drescher, who I think is just fantastic in everything. Well, yeah, it's like the total variety pack. You've got Donna Dixon as the voluptuous blonde. You've got Linda Lay as Jasmine Wu. And I love that she has to put on the Asian accent, the the kind of Charlie Chan accent, that that's what sells her to the clients. You've got uh, Lynn Whitfield as Thelma Cleland, the the fantastic African-American woman. And then, yes, Fran Drescher as Karen Blitzstein. That is an amazing name name and i never would have thought to have the jewish one you know i can see like okay the black one the asian one the blonde one the brunette one but i wouldn't picture like okay the the brunette one is going to be the jewish one but man she just puts that on so thick and i love it though and yes she looks fantastic in this movie all four of the women look wonderful in this let's just take a minute to acknowledge the button pushing diversity that, that Dr. Detroit was. It was so ahead of its time. 
It was just pushing those causes forward. That's really what this movie was. Yeah. Well, and it's 1983 that this movie comes out, and we are in the thick of Reaganomics here, because not only does Smooth Walker, it's very unusual that Howard Hessman is this uh, white pimp, but here he is, and he is in great financial difficulty. He has overspent, he lives this very lavish lifestyle, and he is in uh, an incredible amount of debt. You owe me $80,000. Ah, 60. I'm... uh couple of months behind. 80. The 20,000 extra is a late payments penalty. There are lots of other penalties, you know. Look, Mom, I'm doing my best. I mean, I, I got over... Shut up. The only reason you're walking around with both knees is because you got a class act. I'll tell you what we're going to do. You give me your money, the girls, and everything else you got. Call it even. What about me? I'll let you live. Yes, the woman who apparently runs the Chicago mob. And uh, not only is he in financial straits, but also Cliff's dad uh, and the college that Cliff works at are also in financial straits. And they are hoping for this endowment to kind of come to them for the, uh, I love it, that's the Harold Robbins chair. chair, And uh, they're hoping to get some money in here. So, yes, both Cliff's home life and then eventually his nightlife are just uh, bedeviled by all of these economic woes. I think the thing that impressed me was how Cliff, usually when you have characters like that are very white bread, mm-hmm. like Cliff, and they have something happen in their lives where they enter a whole, a whole world that is new to them, especially a world that may be a bit forbidden or taboo to them. They usually have a little more resistance. Cliff is pretty down for <laughs> basically anything that uh, happens once he crosses path with, uh, with the fabulously named Smooth Walker. Well, I think what really prepares him is his whole college curriculum and that he is teaching all of this stuff about romanticism, about valor, about the proper way. Chivalry, I think, is the the real word that I'm looking for. And when he moves into this other role, he is able to embody all of these chivalric characters that he's talked about so much. And at one point, he even calls Diavolo, who we haven't really mentioned, Diavolo Washington, who's played by T.K. Carter, who most people know as Dolls from The Thing. Uh, he uh, calls Diavolo uh, his Sancho Panza at one point. So he is really just embracing that role. And I think that that is probably one of the areas that I have some of the more uh, the the most problems with is just how quickly he is able to move from mild-mannered Cliff Skridlow into the Dr. Detroit role, though there is that interim role that he plays where he is his first act of kindness to the women is when Thelma is busted by mom and Cliff has to go in and bail her out of jail and he takes on this Southern lawyer persona. And that's what really kind of gives us this whole idea that he can embody these other personas now i can see maybe where it's kind of a stretch like how does this guy how does this professor suddenly jump into this other role obviously he's had some uh, <laughs> some improv training but <laughs> it, it works i mean and and that's probably one of my favorite scenes of the film is him seeing the drunken uh lawyer that's out there that, uh who has this white suit and the black little tie and looks almost like uh he, he kind of reminds me of a cross between otis the drunk and uh colonel sanders and cliff buying his clothes and then going in and 
and putting on this huge performance as this Southern lawyer who will not tolerate you know this injustice that has been done to his sister. The name of that judge, I should have written it down, but is it something like he's Robert got Jefferson? E. Lee. Robert, but doesn't yeah, it, Jefferson, Jefferson Davis. Davis as well? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's all of that mashed into one thing. You couldn't find a more southern name if you tried. That was that was stunning. I was like, wow. <laughs> We are just laying this out there, and the and just the the great fate of coincidence that a man is dressed like Colonel Sanders, uh, in the <laughs> just happens to be out there, yeah, in the hot Chicago weather, yes. Oh my God! I, I kept looking at that suit, thinking, "Boy, the smells." I felt bad for Clifford. I'm like, he is a dedicated gentleman to. <laughs> Yes. And you know when they're switching clothes that that uh, the shaky lawyer is pulling the bottle, you know, the flask out of the pocket and be like, oh, no, this is mine. This doesn't come with the $20. <laughs> and that suit had whiskey, whiskey sweat all over that. It was there's just no way. <laughs> it, as much as I love this movie, it's completely absurd. Like the entire the entire concept is just absurd that he walks in and pretends to be you know, Colonel Sanders and, you know, relating automatically through the Dukes of Hazard vibes to <laughs> to get this guy on his side. It's just so bonkers. I mean, this is like if you watch it and you take take my ridiculous, you know, amusement from the movie out of it and just look at it objectively. He's clinically insane at this point. I mean, from this point forward, he's clinically insane. I mean, he he straps on this I got to be knight in shining armor just a, way too quick. I mean, it's already in his pocket. He's just pulling it out. Well, you could kind of posit that so much of this movie, I mean, we we have a an actual dream sequence in the film where it Cliff is kind of coming to terms with prostitution and just these bad things that could happen. I mean, we have Smooth Walker back with the snake and, you know, money and Diavolo like uh, kind of taking Clifford's mother up to uh, basically get fucked in this uh, upper uh, room. After that, so much of the movie is about sleep and about Cliff needing to sleep. I mean, you could really think that maybe these Dr. Detroit sequences or these sequences with the women are dream sequences because it's just the timeline of the movie is kind of weird because it seems like he has one wild night with the women. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm, I'm so tired. I need to get sleep. I need to get sleep. And it's like, dude, it hasn't been that long. You know, it's not like you're running on three days without sleep, two days without sleep. It's like, yes, I understand you need to get some sleep, but it is so much of the rest of the movie where it's just like, oh, I have to get sleep. I have to get sleep. And then him even like sleeping in the rollaway desk and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, oh, I overslept and now I, I've screwed up the, uh, the, the, the plans. And really he is, he's kind of a fuck up when it comes to his home life with his, while well, he's living with his parents, which is usually not a good sign. Mm -hmm. And then that has, Dad is asking him to set up this catering thing and all this, and Cliff just completely fucks up everything. But the theme of him needing sleep just keeps coming back through the rest of the film. It's like, are you are you okay, dude? Are are you all right, or is this really really taxing to you to put on these you know the the Southern lawyer garb and of course the uh, the Doctor Detroit garb. Uh, one thing I do actually really love about this film is that the, anytime you see him being a professor and trying to teach the class and how utterly bored 
and out of touch those students look. I mean, there's not even like one nerdy student that's like going to put the apple on the desk. I mean, they all do not want to be there. And yeah, he obviously is very passionate about what he teaches. And so it's, it's, it's almost kind of cool to see like, well, that kind of makes the, the whole appeal of being, becoming this super pimp, which uh, is such a great phrase. Uh, just all the more kind of, you know, it's not just the sex and the drugs and the clubbing. It's, you know, hey, this gives him something to to believe in and have people actually support him. Because he, I mean, it seems like his parents are so out of touch with him, too. I don't know. His mom's pretty cool. I, I really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the whole movie's a dream sequence at this point. You guys have convinced me that the entire movie's a dream sequence. None of this actually <laughs> happened. <laughs> it's a taxi driver. <laughs> yeah, you're waiting for Diavolo to come out and start speaking backwards and dancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would. I think there is like some alternative like ending where you know Cliff comes out of like a coma and he realized he had had a mental breakdown from all the pressure at the academic, <laughs> all the academic right. and family pressure, and all of this was just a, a, a wild dream. That would make so much sense, actually. Now, are we led to believe that he has sex with all four of them then, that that crazy night? I am not sure about that at all. I don't even know if it if he's had sex with any of them. It definitely He's definitely enjoyed being in the hot tub with them. That's probably the most embarrassing moment of the entire film is any time you sped up action. Um, well, not any time. I'd say 99% of the time when you sped up action, it doesn't look good. And it's just, it's a cheap laugh and mm-hmm. him diving into the hot tub and stuff but yeah the, i guess with uh one of them asking you know can we use battery powered toys in the uh in the hot tub maybe something is going on with his penis under the bubbles but <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> oh over the mental images yes i, I kind of got the feeling that yeah he probably doesn't even know what sex really is so i almost like to think the girls just are like yeah just shake it a little and he'll think he had the best time <laughs> I can't see Cliff really, you know, unless that's the surprise is that he is actually a stallion in bed. (laughs) It's possible. He's a better pimp than he is a teacher at this point. That's true. Well, there's definitely a lot of stuff that's happening or not happening in that classroom because, I mean, we'll hear from Glenn Headley later who she has. uh, It's funny. She has a name on IMDb. Her character's name is Miss Debbie like, whereas the uh, the judge only has judge as his name where we know he's got like 17 names going on and and she's barely in the movie she if you don't know who glenn headley is you don't know to look over at the you know the second student to the right and go oh look it's glenn headley and there's definitely more stuff happening in that classroom because i think there's even a scene in the uh the trailer that you get to see there's a little bit of a shot of inside the classroom that isn't in the movie and it's like okay there's definitely something happening there and i i did read uh one of the drafts of the script by carl gottlieb and this was after it had passed through quite a few hands and it looks like it was pretty much the shooting script so there isn't very much more to the film and there isn't a relationship and and miss debbie like isn't even mentioned by name in the script and it's like okay i'm very curious what would have happened there so at least we have glenn headley's memories of that but otherwise it's like what else was happening in that classroom was maybe she was that virtuous girl that maybe had he had a crush on you know i'm picturing like stella stevens in the nutty professor or something but yeah no we don't know what happens there 
I'm I'm actually shocked that Dan Aykroyd. I was looking at that. I was surprised. I don't know if you were, Mike, that he's not involved in the writing of this because it really feels almost Aykroyd-like in in spots. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, I think Gottlieb definitely had the vibe. I mean, he had written, you know, obviously the Jerk and Caveman, and which he also directed, and so and he had even, you know, done a little bit of Saturday Night Live. So I think he had the vibe that they were going for. And I think at this point, because he was, I don't know if, if um, uh, Bruce J. Friedman wrote a screen treatment for this, or if he just wrote the short story that it was based on, but then you had uh, Bob Boris in there and then got So I'm curious when, cause I wouldn't be surprised if Ackward was an uncredited writer. Or if Lacey came in and said, okay, listen, this is what I really want because you're right. It does feel like a Dan Aykroyd written movie. Oh, especially when he transforms into the, I mean, that character just is so Aykroyd's always, so great at just adding the most bizarre sort of, oh, you know, touches to uh, his, his comedic you know, characters. So it's, yeah, I was surprised too. Especially since it's not threatening in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I think we need to describe what this character looks like to any, any listener who decided to ignore the spoiler warning and listen anyways. Cause I mean, this, whatever you're going to picture when you think super pimp is not going to match what he is and what he sounds like and what he looks like in this film. Well, let's start with the pants. Well, let's start all the way down at the bottom. Let's start with the white shoes, the lime green pants, the maroon shirt, the mustard yellow coat, the big gold medallion, the metal pronged hand that he has. The also he's got another um, necklace that has a uh, marijuana leaf on it. The overly large, kind of tinted, almost looking like grandma sunglasses, and then this whitish grayish fright wig that he has on his head, and that doesn't even get into the voice. Punctuality is a virtue, my good madam. Let's chew the fat. Just what that's supposed to mean? Oh, nothing personal, love chunks, but can we get to it? You know, I hate to come down from Wayne County. I have businesses in Lansing. I have muffler shops, chicken chains. I got slums to collect the rent from. I have a chiropractic practice. I make adjustments to the human spine. And this little trip has cut far too much into my professional time. I was hoping we'd get a montage of him trying out different clothes to see how put because you see him go into like a theatrical costume department, presumably at Monroe College where he works. And I'm like, what what theater productions have like metal hands, like metal claw hands and <laughs> It kind of reminded me of like a like a a, a knight, you mm-hmm. know, like armor for a knight, but then I was like, yeah, they don't did they have claws like that i don't think so well it's like that mesh material that a a knight would have and the character's very in his mind at least in clifford's broken fractured jacob's ladder mind is is, because that's what i'm convinced this is the comedic version of jacob's ladder now that's what i think it is but I, i think to him he is a knight so that's where he sees that connection and that's part of his character i really believe the hand is the most legitimate part of his costume because i think he is the knight in shining armor saving the the fair maidens 
I can definitely see that. And even when he's riding away, you know, on a, uh, a, a tow truck later on after his first encounter with moms as Dr. Detroit, he, it's almost like, you know, avast by steed, you know, let, let's get out of here kind of thing. But yeah, he's very ineffective as Dr. Detroit. It's like, he manages to get a good reputation out on the street. All of uh, his stable is out there, you know, talking about what a bad dude Dr. Detroit is. Diavolo's out there also kind of, you know, laying this groundwork. And when he finally meets with mom, basically they start taking shots at him because he's one man. She's got an entire army or mini army uh, and with two main henchmen, to your point, Aaron. And then they just start shooting at him and he runs away. And that's basically all he does in the movie is run away from mom. But yet he's successful. I don't get it. (laughs) But he does manage to sneak up on her with a forklift. So I was very impressed with that. (laughs) Oh, that fork. The forklift scene was so so great. And that voice, it's, is it, I mean, I don't know how you describe it. Like Edward Robinson after having a stroke. I mean, it's, it's so bizarre. I'm not even going to attempt it. Like you guys are braver than I am, but oh my God, that, that voice. I'm like, who would be intimidated? I mean, it's kind of part of the beauty of it, I guess, is that nobody in hell would be intimidated by this man. They'd look at me like, what the, what the fuck? Is he on angel dust? Like what's wrong with him? Well, I think it's one of those things where he's so crazy. That's the only, I, that's the only justification I can see for being threatened by this Yahoo at all. I mean, even in the eighties where people are high on Coke at the time, I don't see even high on Coke, meth, whatever you have at the time. I don't see anything threatening about his performance. In fact, I would be more intimidated by the insanity of it. Like this dude needs help. We need to get him help. We need to call an ambulance because he's a very sad man. He's lonely and he needs, needs therapy. He needs help. And his plan is the dumbest plan I've ever seen in any caper. And this is really, you know, a caper, I guess, but I'm going to go in and just confront mom. That's, that's his whole genius plan is this character. And and what she's going to run away. I mean, that's what proves that he's clinically insane. It's just dumb, dumb plan. I think this film needs from now on be referred to as the Jacob's ladder of comedy. (laughs) It's right. I don't know if you guys got this, this vibe, but I rewatched this. I was like, man, mom's feels like she could have been played by Anne Ramsey. It totally seemed like an, Oh yeah. An Mm -hmm. Anne Ramsey type character to me though. Um, the actress that plays her is, is great. Looking through her filmography, Kate Murtaugh, just the number of characters where she was like, she actually played a character named Big Bertha and just like fat woman, you know, just Aww. the poor woman couldn't get a break, though she did play a character named Mom in Switchblade Sisters as well. So I was very happy about that, though some people mistakenly think that she is the same woman that played Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. That is not the case. I just want to put that out there. No, but she is the woman that is on the cover of Supertramp's Breakfast in America album. Oh, which proves that Supertramp knew about 9-11. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> oh right. Goodness. Fuck you, Alex Jones. We got the real scoop right here. That's right. <laughs> we got- Infowars.projectionbooth.com. <laughs> We, we we are cracking the Super Tramp uh, conspiracy theories right now. The thing that threw me off, though, in a fun way, was that every time they refer to her as moms, I kept thinking about Cafe Flesh, which has nothing to do with this movie, <laughs> which made it even funnier because, you know, moms in Cafe Flesh is Tantella Ray, and she's very glamorous and actually probably just as intimidating in some ways. But, um, I mean, Big Bertha's terrible. Come on, people. 
Well, I was really glad, too, to see uh, Andrew Duggan show up in this one, who plays uh, Harmon Rousehorn, another fantastic name, almost up there with Clifford Scridlow. And he's the guy that they are trying to pick up from. This is another real gap in the logic of the film, but they're trying to pick him up from the train station. He's the guy that's going to be giving them the grant, giving the college the grant. And somehow, when he doesn't when they don't show up in time, he ends up going with this cabbie. There's like a little bit more in in the script where he kind of gets rolled by the cabbie having a friend, but him just kind of showing up the next day in a police car wearing a blanket and you know boxer shorts and a, and a tank top. It's like, okay, what happened on your wild night? And he doesn't seem that put out by it, which is interesting as well. I'm, I'm curious what might have happened to uh, Mr. Uh, Rousehorn on that, that crazy night. That'll be in the spinoff. Andrew Duggan, just in case people don't know, he's a very familiar face. When you see him, you'll be like, oh, I know who this guy is. Especially if you've seen uh, Larry Cohen's Bone. He's the main guy, other than Yafet Koto, of course, in Bone. And he is fantastic in that, and he's great in this as well. Oh, in the 80s, he popped up on like every TV show you could think of. Every 80s TV show. He was in Remington Steel. He was in Hardcastle McCormick, Heart to Heart. I mean, you just go down the list. He's like a TV I don't want to say icon because, I mean, you look at him and you're like, I know that guy. He's that guy you know. You know, you see him and you're like, I know him from somewhere, but I can't figure out where. He was that guy in the 80s because he popped up everywhere. He just could never find his personal niche, I guess. This film is good for that, actually, because uh, George Perth, who plays uh, Clifford's dad, Arthur mm. Scridlow, is, is definitely one of those guys where you're like, oh, I know him. And I actually I had to, like, check his IMDb listing because I was like, oh, my God. It was one of those things where, you you know, that classic that guy moment. And I was like, oh, shit. Yes, yeah, he was in Blazing Saddles as Van Johnson. Sheriff, Mongo's back. He's... Sheriff, Mongo's back. He's breaking up the whole town. You've got to help us, please. Did you hear that? Now nah, it's please. This morning I couldn't get the time of day. Who is this Mongo anyway? Well, Mongo ain't exactly a who, he's more of a what. What he said. Well, now I don't know. Oh, thank you, Sheriff. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. The fool's going to. I mean, the sheriff's going to do it! Yeah, great character actor. And also, I couldn't spot him, but on IMDb, they listed John Capelos, uh, who's in The Breakfast Club and Forever Night, uh, the TV show, and 20 million other things. Like, he's a great, great character actor. I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch this yet again and try and spot John, John Capelos. You can do the, we should probably do this as a minute by minute podcast where we, uh, you know, break this down and every episode we just talk about a minute of Dr. Detroit. <laughs> we could, I could do it. I could do it. <laughs> That'd be like four months just on that opening Devo song. <laughs> that Devo song deserves it. It's so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, we could do the Dr. Detroit exercise power walk tape. I'm telling you, it's great for it's great for getting that heart rate up. Well, it's great for working off all that Indian food I want to eat after I watch this movie. My gosh, it makes me hungry for Indian food. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of Indian food in the in this film, which is not a bad thing because uh, Indian, Indian food is delicious. I love that Jasmine is interchangeable as a Indian woman. I mean, just because she's <laughs> she could be whatever ethnic ethnic person you wanted to be, apparently. As is Diavolo, apparently. He puts on a, <laughs> puts on a turban, and suddenly he's, you know, Sahib. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that – I like to think that was a commentary on how, on how gullible uh, certain white people are, where they're just like, hey, it's somebody vaguely ethnic. 
They could be Italian. They they could be from Sri Lanka. Who knows? <laughs> and it's interesting because 1983, I'm probably thinking that it was kind of a nerdy thing for cliff to be so into indian food you know it was probably like before it really kind of became you know kind of a a normal i mean around detroit um it's still not necessarily the most common food around you can find chinese places on every you know street corner almost almost like those taco trucks that we were promised don't get my taco trucks now. Anyway, you can find Chinese places everywhere, but it's, it's a little more <laughs> rare to get uh, Indian food, at least around here. You guys don't remember taco trucks on every corner? That's what would happen if if uh, Hillary Clinton won. That's what Donald Trump told us. <laughs> I I don't see what's wrong with that. I love a good taco truck. Me That's, neither. Nothing yeah. at all. Back to the, the Indian food. I believe it or not. Only tried Indian food after Dr. Detroit. True story. Nice. Mm-hmm. Were you explicitly inspired by Dr. Detroit? <laughs> I was. It's true. Yeah. I, I had never even heard of Indian food. I mean, we were poor, so that's part of it. But as soon as we, I watched the movie, I'm like, I really want to try it. And I want to see if it tastes like Kentucky Fried Chicken. It does not. To talk about uh, how gullible the white people are. Yeah. When he comes in with the, the kernels chicken, it's like, really? You're going to pass this off as Indian food? Oh my god! I, but they love it. <laughs> I love it. Was, was some guy was like like so they're like Gandhi himself <laughs> couldn't could have made they couldn't have made a better dish and you know and the Clifford's like oh well he didn't really eat anyways ha <laughs> or something and why does he jump to eleven like she lights it on fire it's obvious she's he, he's heating the dish or she's heating the dish and he just grabs a fire extinguisher I'm like how do you get to that point how do you get there I didn't see that. As a fire hazard. I hope this isn't going to be a litigious statement, but I'm just guessing that there was a lot of cocaine used on the set <laughs> and in the writing of this film because it's, some of the decision making is just like it, sober, sober people did not. <laughs> I won't say don't because I don't know that for sure. I could be wrong. I'm just saying I feel like the likelihood is very high that, um, that this that there's a lot of coke <laughs> attached to this movie. <laughs> it was 1983. Mm-hmm. Come on. Uh, some would argue you have to be high on coke to really enjoy it, but just a theory. Just a theory. The movie or yeah. cocaine? Uh, okay. The movie. No, the movie. The movie. <laughs> I know that definitely helps with modern problems, so I'm not sure about Dr. Detroit. Yes! <laughs> I like it. Were you guys reminded at all of uh, Candy Tangerine Man, or was that just me while you're watching this? Kind of pimp by night, uh, you know, house husband by day kind of thing? I didn't think of it. This film is so bad. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot, a lot of things I could think of while watching it, <laughs> as, far as, like, as far as references. <laughs> Except Dan Ramsey, of course. If you want to talk about another moment that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, is I'm very curious when Cliff and uh, the ladies had had a chance to coordinate their dance moves, because, of course, this whole movie ends up with this kind of clash of cultures here where we have the player's ball which cliff doesn't know what a player's ball is but anyway he ends up at the player's ball he's going to be named pimp of the year much like fly guy from uh, i'm gonna get you sucker the final category is talent representing the big apple fly guy i'm gonna try to do a little poetry for y'all it's original piece 
written by me, Fly Guy. And I want to dedicate this piece to all you players and all you ladies out there. Name of this piece is called My Bitch Better Have My Money. My bitch better have my money. Through rain, sleet, or snow. My hoe better have my money. I'm telling you, that boy's a genius. Tell it! Not half, not some, but all my cash. Because if she don't, I'm gonna put my foot dead in her ass. And that is happening at the same hotel where this endowment is being given away. So Cliff has to do the classic two places at once kind of thing, running through the kitchen, changing out of his normal geek-a-day clothes into his Dr. Detroit outfit, very cleverly wearing the reversible jacket. I, I do appreciate that quite a bit. But yes, when he is there at the player's ball, when he comes in, he and the ladies do this completely choreographed dance, and I'm just like, wow. To be able to dedicate that much time, I guess no wonder he's not sleeping if he's spending all that time you know, learning these dance moves. I think even if somebody hates this film, I think they, I think they'd have to be honest with themselves and admit that they, they enjoyed that at least a little bit. I wish it was longer. That's what she said. I don't think it's long enough. That's what she said. I want it to be like a 30 minute. James Brown just starts riffing. It's a jam. You know, I don't know. Somebody explodes. It's just, it's so, it, it should be even more epic than it is. But it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It makes no sense like anything else in this film, but, but it's a lot of fun. How do you not get energized when that, when he starts saying, get up off of that thing? Huh. Dancing, you feel better. You just hear it, and I just kept rewinding while I was watching it. Just over and over and over. <laughs> and it's like the song, if you listen to it, there's really no lyrics. Get up off of that thing, dance, and you'll feel better. Dr. Detroit, woo, woo. That's literally the whole song. Can you get a better movie where you have an opening theme by Devo and an ending theme, basically, by James Brown? And he That's showed up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, all I can think is, you know, that he and James Brown, Dan Eckward and James Brown became, you know, best friends when they were working together on the Blues Brothers. And he just like gave him a call. He's like, hey, Jim, I've got a, a project for you. Come on over. You know, we'll, we'll have all the cocaine. You can snort. This is going to be fantastic. And that's that's what sealed the deal, probably. As long as there was Indian food as well, I think. Uh, Mike, I'm offended that you, you know, insinuate that James Brown would snort cocaine. I mean, <laughs> Well, we all know he was more of an Angel Dust fan. He was high on God, Mike. Come on. He's, 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 high, he's high on the Lord. <laughs> he was uh, Come on. Um, boy, yeah, I, I have to say the, the sweaty – there's a lot of sweaty people in this film. I'm not saying they had coke sweat, but it's a possibility. I don't <laughs> James Brown, though, isn't – I mean, I always love seeing him, and especially if he is sweaty. The sweatier the James Brown is, the better performance you're going to get. This is a fact. Well, in the 80s were fantastic for James Brown appearances because I'm already thinking of him in what was a Rocky three when he's doing the living in America song and all that and Apollo Creed coming in. You know, that, it, just wonderful moments of film all to a James Brown soundtrack. 
that was actually one of the good things about the 80s. I, I have very little nostalgia as a whole for the for that decade. I don't believe in nostalgia, but James Brown having a resurgence was definitely a good thing because, I mean, he's the, he's the godfather of soul. He's fantastic. Hardest working man in show business. That's right. And he's high on God. When Dr. Detroit is, is having his like monologue and he's doing his thing, he's trying to give a speech to the audience. I guess it was a speech. It was more like just insane rambling. And he goes through like 15 different names to just call him the hardest working man in show business. So what the hell was all that about? I'm not really sure. That was cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> coke. <laughs> it was the, coke. the implication of this is so cool, though, because it indicates that Clifford the whole time must have been a soul R&B fan. I may be thinking putting more thought into that than they did writing that little bit of it. <laughs> but uh but it's just the the implications pretty pretty cool and the fact that they got james brown like because i i that when you know that whole secrets i always think what was james brown thinking when danny Aykroyd's looking like that and doing that weird voice like what was was james brown thinking like oh this is great or was he like daddy's got to pay a bill i don't know <laughs> you know or Aykroyd owes me one yeah it's just it's so it's such a such a weird image to have James Brown, this legend, next to Dan Aykroyd looking, I don't know, looking like Dr. Detroit. Only in the 80s can you have a nerdy white dude be as cool as <laughs> so cool that James Brown wants to hang out with him and play his player's ball. I mean, only in the 80s would that happen. If you made this movie today, there'd be so much outrage and screaming. And yelling, like, There's no way James Brown, the coolest black guy on the planet, wants to hang out with Dan Aykroyd doing whatever that voice is. That voice. I'm so, so very touched and pleased to be honored in this way. But uh, unfortunately, I have a business uh, in another part of the hotel, a prior commitment, actually a, a small chiropractic service I was supposed to perform. But uh, if anybody is a king here tonight, it is this man, Mr. Try Me, Mr. Please, 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 Mr. This is a Man's World. I give you the hardest working man in show business, ladies and gentlemen, James Brown. I do have to apologize. It was actually Rocky Four that James Brown was in, not Rocky Three. So I, I forgot that it was the introduction to the Ivan Drago fight between Drago and, and Apollo Creed. So that only makes sense that it was living in America for that particular sequence. Yeah, I'm wondering where they're going to reboot that. <laughs> well, after Creed, you know, yeah. it, it's got new life to it. Ivan, Ivan, you know, with the whole thing with Russian relations, Ivan Drago, oh, son yeah. comes back. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I know. I put this out in the universe. I'm scared. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Putin's had... working on the script right now. He's like, how do we do yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> but then Mom's comes back. Because, you know, yes. I'm sure you guys, you know, even as a kid, you're thinking she's got to come back. Like, she, there's no way this heavy is going to be getting rid of that, you know, that early on in the film. And, and come back, she does. And Cliff manages to completely screw up by saying, hi, moms, as he's running past her. <laughs> Not in his Dr. Detroit disguise. No, no. But as <laughs> yeah, he's like, I can't I keep wanting to do this impersonation and I have just enough shred of dignity to not try it because I know I won't do it justice. <laughs> and her goons basically follow him back into the assembly mm -hmm. where, they're supposed to, where the college is supposed to be getting this large endowment check. 
we end up getting gifted one of the greatest fight scenes in cinema history. And I may be exaggerating just slightly, but uh, the fencing, the fencing pas de deux between, <laughs> between moms and, uh, and Clifford, a.k.a. Dr. Detroit. Yeah, because there's some very conveniently placed uh, shish kebabs there, which have uh, fantastic uh, foils uh, going through them. You know, does it seem like a fair fight to fence a woman who is in her 60s and she's got a broken with one arm? With a broken arm. <laughs> what a hero. <laughs> well, eventually one of her, her guys takes over, doesn't he? No. Uh, the, uh. The, oh, that's right. Because the girls put the ice buckets over their head and start beating on them. Okay. Yeah. And, which, and that's it. That's all it took to incapacitate these two fairly large muscular Mid, okay, sure, and then and then our hero, our hero kicks the ass of a disabled, <laughs> a disabled woman, <laughs> and then effectively banishes her. I I appreciate that he asked the crowd whether he should basically kill her or not, and they're all giving the thumbs down. But he's like, okay, yeah, I'll banish you, and it's like, well, I think they actually wanted you to run her through with your sword, but that would be cold blooded murder. It was very chivalrous. That's the thing; it, it keeps up with the chivalry theme. Oh, so ridiculous. The fact that you have mom and all she really, I mean, she had all these goons that were at the junkyard, but apparently they don't travel with her anywhere else. They only show up when Dr. Detroit's going to meet them in a junkyard. And, right. and the rest of the movie, she's just got these two bald guys that I assume are her kids. I assume they're mom's kids. And Well, she is called mom. Yeah, mm. they, she is called mom. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't get why the... The rest of the city didn't take care of this woman a long time ago. I don't. It's not like right. she took much. Then you have all of these pimps at the players' ball who are obviously locals. So it's like, why? I guess do they not owe her money? Is she not worried about them being in Chicago? There's there's some inconsistencies here. That's crazy talk. I know. M- much like James Brown, I'm also high on God and maybe PCP. Well, at the very end of the day, we get um, a, a title card at the very end of the film talking about how there will be a Dr. Detroit 2, The Wrath of Mom. And that seems to be the funny thing to do is for people to complain about that. Like, oh, where's the sequel? You promised a sequel. And of course, this is the year after The Wrath of Khan. So, okay. You know, it was it was probably a joke. But then at the same time, you don't know with Dan Aykroyd because he's always looking for that next cash cow to milk. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw Blues Brothers 2000. We saw that horrible remake of, of Ghostbusters. We know that he's probably out there thinking of the next thing that he can do. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, uh, a Dr. Detroit 2 lurking somewhere out there in the wings. I, I was. I remember when I was like, when I was younger, I was like, man, when are they going to make Dr. Detroit 2? <laughs> I've been waiting for years for this to come out. And I never, never got it, but I got the crappy Blues Brothers movie. I got that. Oh, uh, God. I'm not with you on the Ghostbusters. I actually like the Ghostbusters remake, though, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to be in the minority on that one. There's a lot of people that like that movie. I just it was not for me. And it wasn't because it was four women in it either. It just, I thought that it could have gone better places. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen either one. I, uh, I remember when Blues Brothers 2000 came out and I just, uh, I had like a spidey sense that it was going to suck. And so just, I always, <laughs> I always avoided it. And, uh, I haven't seen the Ghostbusters remake. I don't really have a, a dog in that race. I'm not offended that it came out, but, um, I don't, I'm not, it doesn't pull me. I don't know. I, it's, uh, I'm good. I don't know. There's other films I can watch. In terms of the Blues Brothers, since we were talking about it, the movie is awful, but the soundtrack is actually really good. 
Like if you've ever listened to it, the soundtrack's really good. It's just the movie's awful. So just listen to the soundtrack. You might enjoy that. I don't know. All right. I like the original Blues Brothers albums, you know, Made in America Mm -hmm. and and the soundtrack. And there's at least one other one out there. And I know that I own all three of them. used to own them on cassette tape and then rebought them on CD. So I like their music. Um, I just I guess I just didn't like the idea of him continuing to dig mm-hmm. that grave, continue to, to skull fuck the uh, dead skull of John Belushi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't, I'm looking forward to Neighbors too, personally. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Mike, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that is it, it, very unfortunate. I mean, I would actually much rather see a Dr. Detroit sequel than think about blues brothers 2000 but uh yeah uh oh well you never know though you never know maybe maybe we will get the wrath of mom well one nice thing about the screenplay you know i talked about how the screenplay is very very similar to the finished product so much so that it you know this is the uh july 27th 1982 revision but the screenplay does end with that whole some people call it a uh a breakfast club close i don't like to call it a breakfast club close because this to me seems more like a um either an animal house clothes or an American graffiti clothes mm-hmm. where you go through and you're seeing kind of, you know, those people, you know, the people that we've seen all through the movie. And then you get the title card up over them as far as what they're doing now or what they would do in the future. So I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll read this to you guys. So Monica and Rousehorn. Rousehorn is the, uh, the Andrew Duggan character. Uh, Monica is uh, Donna Dixon. Monica and Rousehorn dancing together. Very close, very slow title card. Monica McNeil married Harmon Rousehorn. They live happily in Palm Springs, where they are active in Republican politics. Thelma and James Brown are singing together. Title card. Thelma Cleland got a recording contract and has six gold albums under another name. Jasmine and Diavolo, who are counting their money. Theirs was Jasmine Wu and Diablo Washington kept the business, saved their money, and bought a professional football team. Next year, they hope to be in the Super Bowl. Meanwhile, we cut to Smooth and four Samoan women on a beach somewhere. (laughs) Smooth Walker married four Samoans and is popular in Polynesia, where he is known as Mr. Pago Pago. Uh, Smooth is drinking a frothy concoction in a cocktail shell. He raises it and toasts someone off screen. And then we go back to the ballroom. Cliff and Karen, the object of Smooth's toast. There we are, dressed in formal wedding suits. Oh, they're they're completely gone to another area. Holding champagne glasses, Clifford Scridlow and Karen Blitzstein are married. Both teach at Monroe College. Karen is nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in Literature. Cliff is writing a screenplay. Cliff raises his glass and toasts the camera. Freeze frame. Roll end credits. Hmm. So that that was the end of, of Dr. Detroit originally. Mr. Pago Pago is my favorite, by the way. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm so glad that we got to see Smooth Walker again, because he just drops out after that dream sequence. You never see him again. Uh, which, I mean, Howard Hessman is so great. I've I've loved him since, you know, when I was little. I'd watch reruns of uh, WKRP. I was a total Dr. Johnny Fever girl. And, um, yeah, of course, like everything else, he's great in this. And I love that he has a Coke nail. Yes. <laughs> in this film i was like oh nice yeah and plus smooth walker i mean who would not drink a whiskey called that 
Yeah, that's yeah. a good call. He should release a whiskey called Smooth Walker, and I will totally drink it uh, while rewatching this movie. Just in hindsight, now that we're kind of re- you know going to the next part of, of this podcast, why wouldn't Smooth Walker just say there's a Doctor Detroit and then just leave town instead of having T.K. Carter beat the crap, beat the shit out of him in the middle of for, for whatever reason, and then you know set up this whole Clifford Skridlow thing and then then leave? It's like just leave, just leave. Are you saying that part of this movie doesn't make sense? No, it makes total sense. All right. It's a brilliant, okay. brilliant screenplay. <laughs> all right. All right. It stands the test of time. <laughs> Come on, Aaron. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't make any damn sense at all. The entire movie doesn't. No. <laughs> the only thing I could think of was that he want, maybe wanted to kind of have like one dramatic thing to like mm. throw mom further off of his scent. I'm probably putting more thought into this than anyone should, but uh, <laughs> that was that was kind of my takeaway with that. But um, then again, this yeah, this this movie's about Dan Aykroyd being a super pimp. So I guess it could continue to poke holes in the logic here because he's. I think he pretty much is saying that Doctor Detroit beat him up, or mm-hmm. maybe his goons. Though we never see Doctor Detroit's goons, and Doctor Detroit is very clearly coming down I-94 from Detroit via Lansing, which doesn't make any sense because that's I-96, but coming down to Chicago. So did he make the trip twice in like just a couple days? That's a good point. He just kicked his ass. You're right. Good point. Hmm. Hmm. Damn it, Mike. You just ruined my childhood. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm worse than George Lucas. <laughs> you're, wor- you're worse than that Ghostbusters remake with those ladies. That's- <laughs> oh, can't handle it. Oh, stop retconning my childhood. All right, we're going to take a break and play some interviews. The first is with director Michael Pressman. Second is with screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. And we'll also have the third and final part of the interview I did with Glenn Headley a while back. You can hear the other parts on the Making Mr. Right and the Dick Tracy episodes. And also, uh, as a little bit of a bonus here, forever ago when I did the Electric Glide and Blue episode, I talked to screenwriter Robert Boris, and I asked him a little bit about uh, Dr. Detroit. So we're going to hear that. That clip as well. So just uh, stick around and listen to these brief messages, and we'll be back with all that fun stuff. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show. So you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. 
Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcast via Libsyn, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we have director Michael Pressman. I wanted to know, how did you get started in show business? Well, I, you know, I grew up in New York City, came from a theater family. Uh, my father was an acting teacher and a theater director, and my mother was a dancer. And as someone once said, I probably was uh, born in a trunk. I loved that world. I started acting as a child. Uh, I was in uh, some summer stock productions. I actually was in the revival of the Thousand Clowns in Florida at the age of 12 and did other productions and went to Carnegie in theater and at the same time was making little movies, comedies made with my father's 16 millimeter home movie camera these days. Quality is pretty spectacular. I still have the films. I should probably get them digitized and shown around. But I, you know, made the uh, the fall of Count Dracula in my own James Bond movie, and you know, I was I was hooked. And then after two years of studying theater at Carnegie, I transferred to California Institute of the Arts and studied three years of film with a great uh, film director dash teacher 
named Alexander McKendrick, better known as Sandy McKendrick, who uh, had made, you know, the masterpieces of Sweet Smell of Success and Man in the White Suit and the Lady Killers. And uh, I had the great good fortune of um, studying with him for three years. We learned a tremendous amount about storytelling, dramatic structure, and staging for the camera, and editing, and, you know, it was really a phenomenal, phenomenal education, and went out into the world after that, so that's how it began. How did you get the Great Texas Dynamite Chase? Well, specifically what happened was, uh, it was for, after film school, I spent about two years um, odd jobs. Everything from writing my own screenplay, to working as a reader, to writing a children's show. Didn't get the job of working at a shoe store during Christmas break, but, you know, interviewed. Uh, they didn't take me. Anyway, I was barely surviving, and a childhood friend, whom I'm still close to, named Jonathan Kaplan, who's a great director, had gone to NYU and had directed a couple of Roger Corman sexploitation movies. And he said, you know, I'll introduce you. So I got in, I met Roger Corman, and I and another friend pitched some stories, and he committed to one, and we spent a year working on it, and then he ended up not financing it, and we had to spend another year trying to raise $200,000. And to make a long story short, uh, with friends from film school and people today who went on to big careers like... um David Kirkpatrick, who became, I think, president of Paramount at one point, he wrote the screenplay, and David Irving was my partner from film school. He went on to be the head of NYU film school, and Sean Daniel was the second assistant director, and he ended up being president of Universal, and all of these people uh, and more were all involved in this $200,000 movie that we finally got financed and made, and took two years to put together, and... um it was uh, it launched my career, and it's such a spectacular movie. I have to tell you. Thank you, thank you. I I, I think it's with such burst of energy and passion, and you know, uh, we really had a sense of humor about it. And I'm still in touch with many people connected to the film. I literally have had uh, contact with Jocelyn Jones re- recently, who starred in the movie, and the cameraman was Jamie Anderson, who I recently reconnected with, who's brilliant cameraman and there was such great talent involved in it that uh, I was a very lucky person and at the same time I was filled with my own you know excitement and passion for making this movie and very lucky I did want to ask you too about the bad news bears and breaking training because I remember seeing that again loving it as a kid but I was just very curious as far as how this came about and was there a lot of pressure because I know the bad news bears was a phenomenal success right what happened specifically with that was um, <clears throat> when they had this big surprise hit in the Bad News Bears, and I remember seeing it and loving that movie, um, they made a commitment for a sequel, and they didn't have a script, and they didn't have Walter Matthau, and they didn't have Tatum O'Neill. Uh, but they had, as they explained later, they had a franchise. And all of a sudden, after, again, not working for almost a year with my movie out and trying to write other scripts, I got a phone call, you know, those days the phone rings and you answer it, and I got a phone call from Don Simpson, who at the time, before he became Simpson Bruckheimer, was an executive at uh, Paramount. And he said, I just saw Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and I loved it. I think it's great. And would you come in and consider uh, being interviewed for the sequel to The Bad News Bears? 
I read his early draft, which was a complete mess, and he put me together with Paul Brickman, also another incredible talent, who went on to make Risky Business, threw us in a room for two months, and Paul came up with a completely new script. We worked together, and they greenlit the film, and uh, I was on a whirlwind uh, trajectory where we started in January or December, started shooting in March, and it uh, was released in July. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I was thrust into the, you know, into the big leagues. You know, it was sink or swim, and I, I swam. I was 26. So if I'm 65, it's almost 40 years ago. Can you tell me a little bit more about Paul Brickman? He is a very fascinating character. He's written some really terrific stuff. He was enigmatic 40 years ago. I have to say I got to know him probably better than a lot of people. In fact, somebody was telling me that they're friendly with Paul, escaping me right now. And I said, gee, I haven't seen Paul in 20-some years. Let's try to make a point of getting together. And the person's escaping me right now, but somehow his name came up. And Paul was a bit of a perfectionist even back then. And and I must say, if you know the movie, he when we, he was working on the script, and it was a great lesson to me and, and a great lesson to all writers. I remember vividly that for the first week, uh, he didn't do anything. I mean, he was trying to figure out what to do. And I'm going, I'm getting a little crazy, you know, I'm with this guy and we're in a room and I go out and he comes back and he's thinking and he's thinking. And then finally he says, what if at the Houston Astrodome, because that was sort of the premise, they go to the Houston Astrodome, the game gets cut off in the middle and the boy goes up and says, let them play. And they can't get the tanner off the field and everybody starts to scream, let them play. And it turns around the whole game. I said, that sounds great. And that's where he started. He knew how to end the movie. And once he found it, he was able to work all the relationships back from there. And um, it was kind of brilliant and wrote it in super fast speed. Subsequently, he would take forever to write stuff. And then after Risky Business, I, from what I gather, he was very, very uh, um, devastated by the fact that they made him reshoot the ending for a commercial ending. He had a much darker ending. And it was phenomenal success, and he was never happy that it was not the film he envisioned. So I thought it was very hard for him to continue working. Oh, it was John Abnett, who's still very close with Paul Brickman. He's come back to me, and that's John Abnett, the producer-director. And I recently saw him, and I I said, please say hi to Paul. And uh, so Paul does things. He's been doing things, but he's... um, not in the mainstream, and I don't think particularly interested in it. And um, it is a little bit of a enigmatic character. Now, how did you and Robert Boris meet? We were thrust together on some kind of hero. That's an interesting story because I haven't spoken to Robert Boris in twenty some years, and uh, he called me about a month ago, um, and we spoke for the first time in about twenty years. And he first did the rewrite on some kind of hero which was with Richard Pryor and did a great job. And then I brought him in on Dr. Detroit and uh, he did uh, a first draft rewrite. And then the studio um, brought in Carl Cotley, who really sort of put all the pieces together in a brilliant way, might I add. He was, Carl was pretty brilliant. Can you tell me a little bit more of the history of Dr. Detroit as far as how that project came together? And I know it was, 
at least based on a Friedman short story, was he ever involved with the writing in the film? Yes. Okay, you're reminding me. Um, the original story was a story called Detroit Abe, and uh, it was a story that uh, Bruce wrote. Uh, Freddie Fields, who was a producer, who was not involved in the movie because when we started to make the film, he left to go run a studio, and that was pretty wild. I remember sitting there with Freddie Fields, the famous agent Dash producer, and I, I bring in the trades, and I go, Freddie, it, it says you're going to be the head of MGM Studios. And he looks at me straight-faced and says, don't believe everything you read, okay? And literally 48 hours he was later, he was announced as the head of MGM. Um, so there you have it. Anyway, Freddie had a long-standing relationship with Bruce J. Friedman, and... He, I'm trying to remember this correctly, he, I got contacted by my agents at the time who were CAA, it was Rick Nasita and Mike Ovitz, and Freddie had pitched or sold the idea to Dan Aykroyd's people and Dan Aykroyd, and we all had a lunch and there was no script, but there was a short story. And Bruce, or better still, no, Bruce J. Friedman wrote a first draft. That's right. There was a first draft of a script that really was completely different. You know, Smooth Walker was an African-American, and, and uh, it was a couple of uh, girls, and I don't think there was a Clifford Scridlow at all. And I don't remember what, I think they were going to have to create it for Dan. Anyway, Bruce did a draft. It didn't work. Uh, he was replaced by Robert Boris, who was then replaced by Carl Gottlieb. And it was a round robin, pretty much a... a a mess all during writing. And um, uh, the only thing that held true was Dan, who had come up with the idea of Dr. Detroit. He had cre- he created the transformative character. That I'll, I'll never forget. You know, we, he, we met one day in New York and he said, you know, that he becomes Dr. Detroit. And he came up with this crazy character right at the beginning. And when we started writing to that and, um, uh, that's the history. You shot a lot of this in Chicago. How was that at the time? Well, it was great, but actually, and, and it was, you know, it was a very, very troubled uh, shoot because we threw out the script about three weeks before shooting. Carl came in and Sean Daniel, who was the executive on the project, I remember vividly coming into our offices and saying, uh, we're greenlit to go. This is how I sold it to Ned Tannen. I said, I have um, good news and I have bad news. We're all set to go. But we got the budget down to $12 million and the trucks have left to Chicago. But I don't have the script. <laughs> and he somehow was able to push this through. And what we did is we outlined all the Chicago material. We shot in Chicago for four weeks. And we did the opening. We did all the exterior work. And then we came back to L.A. to shoot all the interiors, and we shot for two months in New York, in L.A. We shot, you know, um, Clifford's apartment and um, the family homes, you know, the the the, the um, penthouse suite, the dream sequence. All of that was shot in L.A. Uh, the junkyard was all L.A. And that would be shot for almost two more months. Such an incredible cast that you put together. Oh, yeah. I love the cast. I mean, people, you know. People like George Firth and Andrew Duggan and, uh, you know, so many wonderful actors. And the four ladies were wonderful. Just wonderful. Yeah, I had forgotten that it was Fran Drescher in the movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was her second part. I think she just she had like one line in Saturday Night Fever. That was a big thing. Forget the line, but it was it was perfectly suggestive. And that's the way she sounds. That's not an act. That's Fran. Well, of course, she went on to do that series. What was it, The Nanny? Or? How was it working with Howard Hespin? I uh, loved it. Howard Hespin was, was a dream. He was great. He was great. Everybody was terrific. It was it was it was a pretty much a problem free experience when it came to the actors. It was just there was a lot of pressure on the film because we were very um it was very scattered. We were shooting not only out of sequence, but incredibly it was like they the studio would look at the others and they literally didn't understand it. I mean, I, I will tell you honestly, I remember coming back to LA and it was like a firestorm because they were watching Sometimes five minutes of dailies because we would shoot like all night on uh, on uh, Rush Street and we would have three exits from restaurants and that whole sequence where he gets drugged by the girls and that's all we shot and that's all that was scheduled. But they were going, what the hell is going on there? And then I remember having a meeting with Ned Tannen who literally was crazed because he looks at me and he goes, Dan Aykroyd looks like he's asleep. What is going on? And I try to vamp and I go leave the meeting and Sean says thank you for not confronting him but he obviously hadn't read the script and the fact is that the guy is suffering from you know no sleep for 48 hours you know he literally can't function and that's the joke but um, he thought something was wrong anyway it was very tense in terms of the um, studio because we also were way behind schedule I think we were like 10 days over schedule and, you know couldn't finish every time we go into a sequence we'd never finish you know like when we go into the <clears throat> the restaurant where they meet and we'd be there for an extra day and with those it was the times when things took a long time today a cameraman could never get away with you know spending three hours lighting a, a, a restaurant which we did um the other big pressure was that this was the first film that dan Aykroyd would be in alone after belushi's death so there was tremendous worry about the um uh, the success or failure of the film and I have a vivid memory of going to a class somewhere in Long Beach. I remember the guy's name. Gary Prabola had this class, right? I think I spoke several times and was in, I think it was Long Beach. Anyway, I went to this class and it was like 2,000 students and they had just seen the film and it was glorious laughter. And I, I get on the stage and Gary leans over and says, oh, congratulations, you, you finally got a big hit. And I said, the film tanked this weekend. It's not a hit. Like what? I said, "Yep, it did. It, it, it's not going to make it." And at that point, they were thinking, you know, this was going to be their biggest hit of the summer, and it didn't do well. And I mean, subsequently, it's become a bit of a cult hit, but at the time, it was not a box office hit at all. If you check, I think the film only made what thirteen million dollars or something like that. I could check as we talk, but I think it was a very low gross in the theaters. And then, and then I know the DVRs or the DVDs later became quite successful and the film has gone on to be kind of this cult cult hit. I have to ask, what was it like working with James Brown? James Brown was very distant. I, I can't say I had much to do with him. He, I think he showed up for one day, right? And um, uh, and he had a you know group of bodyguards around him and he was, you know, I could talk to him and he wouldn't, uh, yeah, I'm just on this site. Dr. Troik made only $10 million. Did you know that? box office. About three months after the shoot, uh, I was in contact with one of his people or something, and 
I had a great, he was doing a concert out in the valley, New Year's Eve, and I went with a group of friends, and we went backstage afterwards, and we're waiting to see James Brown. And his assistant, whom I forget his name, says, James wants to see you, to me. I go into the dressing room, wants to welcome in the new year with me, and pulls out a glass of champagne. And he looks at me and says, um, I, I never got paid. I said, what? He said, yeah, they never paid me. I said, are you kidding, James? He said, yeah, they never paid me. I said, well, I, I don't know. I was like taken back. I don't know what was. And, and I said, I will look into it right away. Of course, you know, and we drink the toast and I leave and I feel like I was thrown. And I mentioned it to one of the assistants. They said, oh, they never let him get the money. You know, we can't let James get the money because, you know, it'll be gone in a minute. So that was my James Brown experience. <laughs> Was there ever really going to be a sequel to this one? No, though we liked the idea. It was a joke. Uh, it was a it was a tag for the um, the end of the film, of the Wrath of Mom, which had to do with um, you know the Star Star Trek film at the time. You know, and uh, I, I don't know how we came up with it, but and I actually thought you know we were we were so euphoric. In the making of the movie and the release, and 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 everyone was thinking we had this monster hit that it felt like um, at the time it felt like who knows we may be forced to make a sequel, um, but it was true hubris, and you know I would never make that mistake again. <laughs> I actually own the forty-five for the theme song to this by Devo. Uh huh. Was a big fan of the song. How did they get involved with, with the movie? If I remember correctly. Bob Weiss had the uh, relationship with Devo. They they were contacted, and uh, we all went to the recording studio, and they were shown the film, and they came up with that song, which was um, which was great. Fitz is jogging very well. Yep, perfect, perfect. I mean, that was just you know luck, but uh, no, it was it was, a, it was a, um, a blessed experience when I look upon it years later, and at the time it was filled with angst, you know, because we were also you know I mean. Who knew what we had, and we thought we had something incredible, and I think there was tremendous disappointment in its initial release. And I think that it was um, oversold, and the expectations, there was a trailer. I remember hearing that the trailer tested to the roof in Las Vegas at the, at the, at the um, you know, screening for exhibitors, and they upped the prints, a thousand prints off the, off the trailer. It was like, oh my God. I mean, we went out in 2,000 theaters at the time instead of like 800, and you know, and, and and I think, by the way, if I were also to say, I think that the film did suffer from a complicated concept that was confusing. You know, the idea of hookers and them working for money and he befriends them. And we sort of never dealt with any of that and treated it as straight. And, you know, for some reason, it it, it, uh, it backfired a little, I think. I, you know, I sort of can't explain it because so many people love the movie. So, you know, there you have it. Yeah, you're kind of riding a weird crest there between Dr. Detroit, Paul Brickman's Risky Business, and then uh, Ron Howard's Night Shift. It was like these three prostitution movies all coming out right around the same time. Yeah, yeah. And we were making fun of it and not giving it any kind of weight. You know, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was strange. I mean, I, I have no perspective on that. After Dr. Detroit, you went and made just a ton of TV movies. <laughs> what was that experience like for you? And was I know now television is pretty much where it's at. Obviously, you know, you're working in television these days. You, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. 
But what was the the TV movie like at the time? Well, that's interesting. What had happened for me was I started so young and I, you know, had by the time I was 32 years old, I had directed six feature films, but I had not directed a blockbuster hit. And in fact, Dr. Detroit was, you know, considered the biggest flop. Some kind of hero before that with Richard Pryor was a very moderate success. And um, then you had two other films that I did that were, one was artistically very well received, uh, Boulevard Nights about the Chicano gangs, but it was pulled from the theaters after like two weeks because of gang riots. And then those lips, those eyes about Summer Stock, which to this day, some people still consider my my best film and, you know, has a tremendous following in the theater world. It starred Frank Langella and uh, Tom Hulse and, and, and Jerry Stiller was in it. It was a great, great cast. But it was literally, literally, you know, zero at the box office. And so I was in uh, movie jail. I remember, you know, um, actually getting involved uh, after Dr. Detroit in a project that I developed for two years, a great, a great script based on a, uh, on a famous book called Growing Up by Russell Baker, which I still have the script. Tried to cast it, tried to get studios interested in it, and was unwavering and woke up two years later sort of out of the movie business and didn't want to just do, you know, the next film that was offered to me. And after a year, uh, there were no films offered to me. And, um, it was a very, very tough time. And it's the kind of thing that many people, you know, end careers and leave the business. But I was very fortunate in being offered one television movie that led to another television movie that started being, I started becoming the go-to person at all the networks. And I would get offered, literally, I would get offered anytime I was free, I was being offered a television movie. And I ended up doing about three or four a year. And, what I found and why I liked it so much at the time was it's kind of like being your own boss. They, they would, I mean, I, I could do whatever I wanted. And I started to say, I feel like I'm becoming a better director. I'm going back to film school. I mean, no one's telling me, I mean, I could do scenes in one oneers. I could uh, shoot wherever I wanted to. I'd hire my own cameraman, my own crew. And it wasn't even necessarily cast contingent. That started to happen after about three or four years. And I kind of moved up the ladder of television movies in terms of quality and then ended up directing a couple of terrific television movies, one with Angela Lansbury about the famous flight that was shot down over Russian uh, airspace and then all about the building of the Vietnam Memorial called To Heal a Nation. And then I went on to do two Hallmark Hall of Fames and I was sort of at the top of the TV movie game, one that I I... I I'm very, very fond of is a, a television movie called um, Saint Maybe that's based on an Ann Tyler book that starred uh, Tom McCarthy, who just won the Oscar for Spotlight. He was the star of the film. He and I are still close. He was an actor. And um, Mary Louise Parker was in it, and Blythe Danner was in it, and Ed Herman, the late Ed Herman, and others. Anyway, it was um, a great experience. It was, you know, at the time, I think it was a six million dollar budget you know i mean it was like it was, this was this was fabulous and um then after that i think i did about four or five television movies that started to really 
started to lose interest. I started to getting the restrictions and I get calls from the network about, you know, your coverage and you need to get these angles and this and all of a sudden I realized, oh, wait a minute, well, I'm being, I'm being watched. And I was very, very fortunate to start reading pilot scripts and directed a couple of pilots that didn't sell and then, um, read the pilot script to Picket Fences, which was the show that I went on. And I met with David Kelly, whom I didn't know, and he and I chatted for about an hour. We had a great meeting. This was 1992. And he didn't hire me. And I said, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I thought I had the job. And so uh, another director directed the pilot. And then um, he called me six months later out of the blue and says, well, this show got picked up for series. Would you like to be a co-executive producer, director of the series? And I said, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I said, I, I'll think about it for 30 seconds, but the answer is yes. It was like, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, let's cut to the chase. I love the script. Uh, I said, well, you know, do you want to look at the pilot before you say, I said, sure, I'll look at it. But the bottom line is I want to do it. Because I knew the TV movies were on a real decline, and this was an opportunity. And I remember saying to my wife at the time, unfortunately, we're divorced, but Said to her at the time, I said, this is going to be, you know, 13 episodes and out. This will be, you know, it's a real odd show and I've never done this job. And he's a really talented writer and he's never had his own series. And, uh, you know, how can it go? How can I, how can it go wrong? You know, we're, I'm so I'll do this for 13 episodes. Little did I know, four years later, 16 Emmys later, this was one of the great experiences of my life and cemented a, long-lasting relationship, working relationship, dash friendship with David Kelly that uh, is, uh, exists to this very day and with others as well. I'm very close to the people on Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, which is the other show I did the pilot to, and then, um, you know, other shows. So I became, um, you know, sort of established a whole new career at the highest level, you know, being a producer-director of television. Did you feel any deja vu? You, here you were coming in all these years earlier to Bad News Bears, the sequel. Did you feel any similarity when you got pinged to be the uh, director of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> that memorable, huh? Yeah. No, I loved it. I just forgot the sequence. Yeah. What happened was... Oh, okay. All right. I skipped a couple of years there. What happened was I'm doing a television movie... And it's starring a about a 12-year-old boy. We're shooting in Malibu, and the producer is a guy named Terry Morse, and the cameraman was a guy named Shelley Johnson, and my first assistant director was Rob Coyne, whom I literally got off the phone with a half hour ago. He's now the executive producer in Grey's Anatomy. And I get a phone. Oh, Terry says, I just got an interview to do the sequel to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but they're looking for a director. And I told them you had done the sequel to the Bad News Bears, and they got all interested. And I went, Terry, what are you doing? I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I turned to the 12-year-old, because the movie had just come out about two weeks ago, and I said, what do you, what do you know about this? And it was like, <gasps> I mean, he went, almost had a heart attack. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? What about Michelangelo? Blah, blah, blah. He started thinking the whole thing. I said, oh, my God. So I went to the theater that weekend, watched the first one, and said to myself, yikes, I think I can make a better movie than this. I went into the meeting. I said, you know, I found the film kind of dark and, you know, this. They want to make it funnier and lighter. And 
I said, I'd love that too. And when I got the job, I, you know, if I mentioned it to any, anyone under the age of 10, I was a hero. It was a hoot. I, I, it was one of the great experiences of all time because I got to work with creatures and puppets and special effects and picture with a $40 million non-union movie shot in North Carolina with no stars. So everything was on the screen. I would say it's equivalent to making a $100 million movie today. And we shot for 75 days, two units done at the same time, four months of prep with storyboards for everything. It was one of the great experiences. I, I had a blast. And the movie came out and was a big, big hit as a sequel. But it didn't do much for me directing-wise because it was a kid sequel. And no one could see the work. You know, it was like, well, I mean, okay, so you direct puppets and creatures, and, you know. But the fact of the matter is it's, it's a very entertaining movie. You know, every time I go anywhere today and I'm directing somebody who's 25 or 30, and they find out that I directed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, it's like, you know, I've become a, a star in their eyes. It's a riot. Absolute riot. And then after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I got a phone call to step in on a troubled television pilot at Fox that led to my meeting David Kelly. So that's that's how it all happened. What are you working on these days? Well, God, there's I'm I'm I got involved in the theater. That's part of what happened. I I left LA about twelve years ago and directed on Broadway the revival of Come Back Little Shiba, which was a big hit. And I've always loved doing theater. And in fact, the other part of my movie career, the other film I didn't mention, there's two. One is while doing um, Picket Fences and Chicago Hope, I had uh, 10 years earlier directed the play of Tajillion on our 37th birthday. And I showed the play to David Kelly and we got the rights and we made the movie which starred Michelle Pfeiffer and Claire Danes and Peter Gallagher. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a indie movie made at the studio at the time. And uh, uh, that was a great experience. And then I actually went off and made my own little indie film called Frankie and Johnny Are Married, all about working on Frankie and Johnny and the Claire Balloon and putting on a play in Los Angeles and the equity waiver world. And uh, that film became a bit of a, um, a cult favorite. And, um, got a lot of acclaim, and that's when I decided, for professional reasons, to move to New York. For personal reasons, my parents were close to 90, and my son was six at the time, and, you know, my parents couldn't travel, so I figured, well, if he's going to get to know his grandparents, he's got to come to New York. So I always missed the life of, of New York and, and came back and directed some theater and um, became producer-director on Blue Bloods for a couple of years, and that was um, a terrific experience. And then I've been developing lots of different projects. I've got a couple of movies that I'm working on and some series and three different plays I'm trying to get on again. And uh, I have lucked into the uh, rotation at Law & Order SVU, so I've been doing about God, four episodes a year over there. And uh, that, that, I feel like I go to the gym when I direct on that show. You know, stay, stay current because, you know, styles have changed so dramatically and I've done, you know, lots of different shows as an episodic director, which, you know, was looked down upon 20 years ago, and now is probably one of the most difficult jobs to get in television. I I have uh, directed Justified and Damages and In Treatment and Weeds and, you know, and then Elementary, I'm going back there this year for a couple episodes. And so 
my my plate is full, and it couldn't be a more sort of exciting time, both for new projects and trying to navigate the the field. You know, it's a very very um, complicated uh, forest out there. Well, it sounds like you're doing great, which is terrific. Thank you, thank you. It's I'm I'm, I'm very lucky, and I also you know enjoy my work. And don't plan to, you know, to stop anytime soon and, uh, look back at all this stuff, both Dr. Detroit and Bad News Bears and all these experiences and they sort of feel like yesterday, you know? I did have one last question for you as far as Frankie and Johnny are married. Yeah. Now, I know you've worked with some difficult actors in the past. You know, you talked a little bit about James Brown. I've heard some stories about working with, uh, Richard Pryor. Some good, some bad. Right. But what was it like directing this Michael Pressman guy? Yeah. <laughs> um, very funny. I, for, let's see, let's see. For starters, I, I so enjoy working with actors that, that I, I, I appreciate their madness. You know, James Brown wasn't particularly difficult. I mean, you know, the, 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 the two that I'm really famous for are Mandy Patinkin and David Caruso, because I stepped in for 13 episodes on Michael Hayes and, uh, you know, as they said, I kind of tamed, tamed some lions. Um, and, and basically, the the joke of the movie, and I'll give you a little side story, which is when I wrote the scene in the film of Frankie and Johnny were married that I'm calming down Mandy Patinkin, who's having a complete meltdown. Um, uh, I wrote the scene, I remember I showed it to David Kelly, who's also in the movie, and he said, oh, you know, you really can't send that to uh, Mandy, he'll be very insulted. And I said, I don't think so. So I send it to Mandy, and he calls me up. He says, I love it. I love it. Oh, God, I'd love to do this. It'd be so much fun. And it's like, he got it. And not only did he do it, he improvised all half the scene, and I had a blast. And and the point of that scene, as well as the point of, of the movie, is kind of like, you know, an actor has to be heard. You know, an actor has to be supported, and an actor has to feel safe. And so... I, Alan Rosenberg, who, dear friend, and whom I love, um, played the difficult actor based on another actor who was based on a real experience and went to town and, you know, he was hysterical and I had no problem directing myself except that I actually, that's not the way I am. I mean, I actually found this character that was a little bit more explosive and kind of, uh, temperamental by the end of the movie. Which was the which was the joke of the film, but uh, that was all acting, as they say. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Pressman. This mm-hmm. has really been great. Okay, good. I, my pleasure, and uh, nice of you to think of me. And uh, good luck with everything. You got quite a wonderful sight there. Next up, we have screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. What was it like when you first joined the committee, and how did you decide to do that? I was a draftee in the U.S. Army at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri back in the early, early 60s. And a friend of mine had joined the committee. He was in the original company, a guy, actor named Larry Hankin, who had been my college roommate and we were friends. And he you know, I, he told me all about how the West Coast was this nirvana. So when I was uh, finishing up in the Army, I had a furlough, and I went out to visit him and saw the show and hung out with the company for three or four days, five days, and they didn't have a stage manager at that time. The actors would do their own lights, except for when they were all on stage, and then the cook in the kitchen would go in the light booth and do the blackout. 
so they they needed a stage manager. Ah, so uh, I went with them while I was in in California on leave from the army. I went with them on a road date when they were out on a dark night. I think we were dark Mondays. So I went with them to uh, some concert in Monterey and helped them get the lighting and sound set up and arrange the stage. And they said, oh, you're a good stage manager. And Larry said, yeah, that's what Carl does. He's a stage manager. So they offered me the job of stage manager when I got out of the Army, which was a few months later. So I took the job. I came out to be a stage manager and started working backstage. And then about a year or so later, the company went to New York to play Broadway for a limited run, and they had an interim company that, that I directed. I moved up from stage manager to director. I directed the company. Then they came back from New York. I was demoted back to stage manager. Then I left the company and went to New York to work in the theater there. And then uh, I rejoined the company as an actor a few months after that. So there I was on stage. Because in, while I was still stage manager, I had appeared on stage every now and again in, in the role of the stage manager, you know, just playing myself. And I was comfortable on the stage, and I got laughs. So when the opportunity came up to be an actor in the company, I grabbed it. And with me was another stage manager who had moved up to actor, Howard Hessman. And we formed a new company of the committee that was there. And we were a hit in San Francisco. And then a couple of years later, in 68, we moved to Los Angeles with the theater. Had theaters in both cities, San Francisco and L.A., and I I came to L.A. with the first company that opened the theater in L.A., and uh, we did very well. So I stayed in the show for a couple more years after that, and then uh, got a job writing television variety comedy. Smothers Brothers saw the show on uh, on the Sunset Strip and were hiring new writers. So I went into television and you know changed my life. Just looking at your credits, you've done so much and so many different things. I mean, the producing, the writing, the acting, the directing. You probably have a favorite of all of those. What would that be? I'm torn between the three, you know, acting, writing, and directing. Writing is the most satisfying after the fact. I think it was Bernard Shaw who said, you know, do you like writing, Mr. Shaw? And he said, I like having written. That Because the process itself is painful. So I like having written. Acting is wonderful because, you know, you just, especially live improv, improvisational theater, because, you know, you're, you're on your feet, you're thinking, you're working with the audience. It's all, it's, as I recall, it was some of the most exciting evenings I've had. And then uh, as a director, especially in feature films or, or, uh, or yeah, feature, feature length theatrical films, um, you know, you, you are the god king. So what's not to like about that? So... You know, the, all three have their appeal in different ways. You know, acting is great for the ego, directing is even more so, and writing is more purely creative. How did you come to be in MASH? Altman saw the show, uh, saw the committee, and he already knew he was going to be improvising dialogue. He didn't tell Lynn Lardner Jr., who wrote the screenplay, or Fox, that he was going to do that. But he was assembling a company that had some improvisational chops. And there was an Australian actor who was going to play Ugly John. Uh, and he couldn't get a work visa. So I was second choice. And they called me about a week before photography started and said, you know, you got the job. But we're not changing the wardrobe. So I'm, I'm kind of dressed like an Aussie in that if you, if you catch a look at me, at me. 
I was, you know, I was cast by Altman, and uh, we stayed friends for years after that. I, I did a small bit in, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, I think you were in The Long Goodbye, right? Long Goodbye, yeah, I did a bit in The Long Goodbye. But I didn't become part of a stock company, which probably was uh, probably better off. But uh, it, it was it was great. It was great fun knowing Altman during that time. Whenever I hear actors talk about Altman, they just can't say enough good things. Just that he was such an actor's director. Was that your experience as well? Uh, yes, I did read one critique of Altman that actually made sense. It, well, it wasn't. My experience, my experience was, you know, the same as most actors, because he 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 very much indulges actors. You know, he he lets you do whatever you want to do, and then he, he trusts himself to get a performance out of it and you know capture what he needs on film. But somebody, I forget who the critic was, somebody somebody well known said, contrary to popular belief, Robert Altman hates actors. He never pays them. He you know, if you work for Altman, you work for scale. But he, he he never pays them, and he never allows them a complete performance. He's always cutting away to something else. In, in an Altman movie, it's very hard for an actor to completely develop the arc of a character. Elliot Gould was able to do it in Long Goodbye, but if you think about his other films, they're almost always ensemble pieces, which means that no individual actor gets to shine unless they have a, a golden moment the way uh, Bud Cork did in M.A.S.H., or, or uh, what's her name? The the actress who was so wonderful. Who didn't work a lot after that. I think she got married and left the business. But uh, the uh, the actress who played uh, D- Lieutenant Dish, she was another one who did like one look into the camera that just uh, made made a career for her. Uh, and you know later she you know, Shelley Duvall and, and uh, Bud Cord again. You know they they uh, John Shuck. A lot, a lot of actors got career starts from being in Altman movies as he gave them room to do their best work. So you started off doing a lot of comedy, uh, Smothers Brothers, Bob Newhart Show, Flip Wilson, these things, Odd Couple. And then you come to something like Jaws, and I've always wondered, how did Carl Gottlieb go from all this comic stuff to working on Jaws? Stephen knew that the the script was uh, kind of cardboard heroic. The script that Stephen inherited or were picked up from Zanuck and Brown's desk. The casting choices at the time were like Charlton Heston or Lee Marvin as Quint and Jan Michael Vincent as Hooper. You know, it was very, you know, it was, it was very much like the novel, you know, kind of pop summer novel fiction. And uh, Stephen knew he had to make it more human. So we were friends. We had the same agent. I had improvised scenes in two of his television movies. So uh, he he said, you know, it'd be great if you were down there. You could help with the extras and you could improvise with them. So let me see if you know, take a look at the script, see if there's a part you can do. So I looked at the script and I saw the part of Meadows, which was you know in the movie all the way through and and had lines, but it wasn't a terrible, demanding part. I didn't have to be spectacular. So I I took that part. I got cast. I mean, I went through the interview process. I had to get cast, so I got cast, and then they. Uh, but he said, "Can you start? You know, can you start tomorrow?" And I said, uh, "Sure." Um, I, I I quit the odd couple on a day's notice and got on a plane, flew to the vineyard where I lived with Stephen. We started rewriting the movie, and the next thing you knew, it was like four months later. 
all the dialogue was finished, I came home and went to work on the Flip Wilson show to, you know, because I I needed an income. And then the movie came out, and you know, it it, it became what it became, and you know, without anybody anticipating that. What were some of the things that you brought to the table when it came to that? A lot of the uh, you know so-called real actors in Jaws, you know, the locals, the local hires. A lot of them were encouraged to ad lib, and I would, if I was on the set, I would contribute to the process. I would be improvising myself in in my scenes, and because I was, you know, literally sharing a house and a you know breakfast and dinner with, with Spielberg every day, we could talk about the movie, you know, as it was evolving, what the strengths were, what the weaknesses were, what do we do if the shark doesn't work. We just had a, a terrific rapport, so it was able. It was, the thing that I think makes it a successful movie, this is of course from the writer-actor point of view, uh, is that it has a whole lot more humanity than most uh, horror adventure films. You really care about the principles involved, and they're all very, very human. And it's not a protagonist-antagonist, it's a, it's a triangle of three people who have to cooperate, and each one is a, represents a different pole. Hooper is the intellectual man, Quint is the, uh, you know, the visceral man, and Scheider is the, Brody is the every man stuck in the middle trying to mediate between these two forces and save his own life. So it, it was a very interesting structure. And we knew that, you know, so, so we could play to our strengths. Right around here, you directed a short that I have to say I still quote from today, The Absent-Minded Waiter. Yes. How did that one come about? After Jaws, I did a movie with Richard Pryor called Which Way Is Up? kind of to get my comedy chops back, my comedy cred. <laughs> and then my friend Steve Martin, who had been a writer on the Smothers Brothers show with me, and who I had stayed friends with and socialized with in Hollywood, uh, Steve Martin got a script deal at Paramount and asked me if I would collaborate with him. He, was, he didn't want to do it by himself. He was new to screenwriting at the time. And I had done Jaws, which was a biggie, and Pryor, which was a very honorable comedy project. So, you know, I said yes. So the two of us sat down in a room and came up with the idea for the jerk. And, oh, and, and as part of that process, David Picker, who was running Paramount at the time, grew up in the industry, and he knew that if you were going to break a new comic in film, in the old days, they would have made that character, they would have put him in a couple of B-movies with Jack Oakey, you know, they, they, they'd bring you along before they launched you as a screen star. Well, in the films in the 70s, there was no there was no room for that. That's not how movies were being made anymore. But since Pickle was running the studio, he figured if the studio financed a Steve Martin short and attached it to, I think they were thinking of putting it with Grease, just giving it to the exhibitors as something else to run with the feature. Exhibitors would take it because it was free, and the film audience who was going to see Grease or Travolta would... would see Steve Martin in a starring role and they would get used to the idea of him as a movie guy, not a TV guy and not a nightclub guy. And and as we were doing that, after the, the screenplay was done, there was a change of regime at Paramount. It's complicated, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to walk you through it. There was a change of regime at Paramount and the new regime, between Mike Eisner and Barry Diller, decided they didn't want to do any David Picker projects, including Steve Martin. So they... they uh, pulled the plug uh, uh, on developing the screenplay any further. So Steve and his management really wanted to make the movie, so 
They said, well, clearly you don't want to be in business. You don't want to be in the Steve Martin business as a studio. So, and, but you still owe us like, you know, a good six figures for another screenplay. So we'll let you out of your screenplay commitment if you give us our first screenplay with no strings attached and give us the short subject to do with as we will. Because, you know, Paramount paid for it, theoretically. So they said the Paramount thought that was a good deal. So David Picker went to Universal, made a deal overnight for the jerk to be a Universal picture. And Steve kept the absent-minded waiter and used to open his uh, concerts with it for the next you know, few years until he quit stadiums. Yeah, I remember him doing some TV specials, and I want to say that that might have been part of one of those. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, for a while, it was, it was like no prints of it. It was very hard to, to get unless you'd you know, videotaped one of his uh, HBO specials, the only place it existed. And then, you know, then, then now, now, like everything else, it's been on YouTube. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah, tell me more about The Jerk, because it's such a, just the way that the movie plays is one of the most unique, just the, the way that the tone will shift and the way that we follow Navin Johnson through his life. And just, you know, when he suddenly gets the optograb and everything changes for him. I mean, it just, it, how was that process of writing with Steve Martin? The version that we wrote was a, a little bit more realistic and dark. It was more satirical. It kind of reflected my satirical background. When it went to Universal and they and Carl Reiner came aboard as director, they decided they wanted to make it a little more goofy. And we couldn't come to terms on a rewrite deal for me. So I left the project and Michael Elias, who's a very funny television writer, and another friend of Steve's from, from nightclub days, he came on board as the next writer. The screenplay credits are probably the most accurate. They say story by Steve Martin and Carl Gottlieb. That's that's correct. And then screenplay by Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb, and Michael Elias. And for a while, they had Carl Reiner on there because he was the director. He couldn't take a screenwriting credit. He didn't write enough to qualify under Guild rules. Carl Reiner did a lot of the visual gags, you know, created them as director. So it was a it was one of those great examples of a happy collaboration where the cooks didn't spoil the broth. They, you know, they made good soup out of it. They made a meal of it. Yeah, there are some really dark moments in that, especially like uh, the M.M. at Walsh part. It, it just always takes me by surprise. It's like, where the hell did this thing come from? Yeah, yeah, that was a- because we were just going to write a funny film, you know, what, what struck us as funny. I mean, we, it, it took a long time to get started. We were sitting there for weeks without, without a script, without a story, just kind of looking at each other. We had an office in the writer's building at Paramount and you know, nice new electric typewriters and plenty of quiet. And we'd come in every day and just kind of sit there and, well, what if? No, uh, what if? No, uh, what if? Uh, and then Steve said one, one, afternoon he said you know the line that always works for my act it's kind of a saver even if the act isn't going well this line always gets a laugh says i was born a poor black child so basically we both you know kind of lit up and said well wait a second what if you were born a poor black child what are the ramifications of that obviously you're going to learn one day that you're not black you know do it through music you know and and then everything else followed and then you know, when we were thinking, well, what, what could complicate his life? We had this deranged assassin who actually is, 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 uh, shooting at, at Navin because Navin is too white. Milk face, I think he calls him milk face at one point. Yeah, I, ne- I never 
made that connection that he was too white. Yeah, he's wearing, he's wearing a white, you know, white uniform, and he's uh, Martin is the you know the whitest man in show business. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, you know, it's one of those things that was, you know, nobody commented on the time, but uh, you, you just mentioned it, and it was it was uh, it's, it's, it's funny how we came up with the assassin. I don't know what motivated originally, except those kind of random killings were still present in the United States, so we you know we decided to take advantage of that. How long did you have to prepare for your role as Iron Balls McGinty? <laughs> uh, you know, thirty minutes. I with the stuntmen. They have to. They they packed my. Uh, I, I wore a cup for that scene. So they, you know, we did the walk and talk first. That was the easy part. Where I was just one of the three con men hustling Maven for money, and then it turns out that they are prejudiced. And then you know, then he fights with them. And then when it came time for the kick, the preparation was basically putting on a cup, stuffing a bunch of socks in my crotch to protect me, and then the stuntman showing Stephen how to uh, how to kick somebody in the balls without actually hurting them. And Stephen, who has a lot of uh, Steve Martin has a lot of physical control. I mean, he juggles, he tap dances. You know, he's a he can be a very physical comedian, and he's well coordinated. So I trusted him to just give me a, a good kick and not hurt me, which is what happened. I think that's an that's an example of Carl Reiner adding it in you know in, in when, when they were filming the nightclub scene they added that line of dialogue and then added that clank when the foot hit the crotch that was all post production I don't think that was in the scene and uh, but I don't I don't remember which came first the chicken or the egg in that one now I know you had done some uh, directing work obviously you d- directed the short you'd gone on to direct some episodes of television but how uh, did Caveman come to be your first feature film The producers came to me they said do you remember 1 million BC and I said like the black and white version or the Raquel Welch version and they said both of them I said yeah you know of course Raquel Welch in a fur bikini what's not to remember and they said, well, we want to do the same thing, only funny. So I said, okay. And they said, we, and we want you to write, you know, write and direct it. So, you know, that, that seemed like a good idea at the time. So I did, and I wrote a screenplay, and then they wanted to make it much more Mel Brooksian. So they asked me if I would mind a collaborator, one of Mel Brooks' stable of writers, Rudy DeLuca, who took the ideas that he couldn't sell to me and sold them to Mel for uh, History of the World. So Rudy came aboard as a collaborator. We wrote the screenplay together and then got a green light from the studio. And then Rudy was very disappointed because he thought we were going to co-direct it. And I had to break the news to him that, that you know, that wasn't the deal. I, I had a directing deal in place. And his agents had lied to him. They basically said, you know, you can write and direct this movie. <clears throat> Terman and Foster were you know, traditionally cheap producers. So they didn't, they didn't want to pay him his quotes, his Mel Brooks quotes. So they probably got him for less money, if they, and then they told him he had a chance to direct it. And he never had a chance, because I was already set. But I had to break the news to him. Because I called him, I said, break news, we got a green light to, to do our script, and I'm going to direct it. And then there was this, like, frost coming out of the telephone. I said, well, what's the matter? He said, well, I thought we would direct it together. And I had to say, well, gee, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea for a movie to have two directors. And at that time, there weren't any, you know... That's it's before the Cohen brothers, it was before the Farrelly brothers, it was before Kentucky, you know, there was a time when there weren't any, you know, directing teams. It wasn't a team effort. So I, you know, I said, no, I'm going to, I'll, I'll direct it. I'll, I'll be as 
faithful to the script as I can. And I mean, and uh, he, he was pretty pissed off. So once you started directing it, how was your experience? I loved it. I mean, you know, it was uh, it was great fun. I had a, a great cast and crew. We were on a difficult distance location, which made everybody pull together. And uh, I've still got friends I met on that uh, on that shoot. The cast is just terrific on that. I mean, I. I Love Jack Ilford and Dennis Quaid doing comedy, something he doesn't do enough, in my opinion. Exactly. Yeah. And John Matuzak, who's a natural. Avery Shriver from Second City. It was a good, was a good company. Shelley Long, that was her first job in Hollywood. It was before Cheers. Yeah, she was just a very funny girl from Second City in Chicago. Now, how did you get involved with Dr. Detroit? That was a straight-up uh, doctor job. They were in trouble. I think it was a Paramount they had started with a director and a writer who were not particularly funny. And, I mean, unfortunately, things in Hollywood being the way they were, the director-writer team had just finished a Richard Pryor movie, and which hadn't been released yet. So on the strength of this un- unreleased Richard Pryor film, they got this Dan Aykroyd comedy. It might have been Aykroyd and Belushi had Belushi lived. Um, Belushi died. And they went at, you know, the production went on. And then, uh, Some Kind of Hero, which was the Richard Pryor film, came out. And everybody went to see it and said, holy shit, this is a terrible script and it's not very well directed. And we're already in bed with these guys. We're, we're, we're already shooting. So they looked around for somebody to do a production rewrite. And, uh, you know, I was kind of known for that and having those abilities. So I got hired and flew to Chicago and worked on the script for, month or so, week, three weeks or some period like that. And when the smoke and dust cleared, I had qualified for a shared screenplay credit. Now, I'm always curious when it comes to the screenwriters on some of these films. Like, once the movie started shooting, were you still around or had you already oh, moved no, on no, to the I next was, project? I was writing, I was kind of the same as Jaws 2 and Jaws 3. I was on the set kind of writing ahead of the schedule. So you got to work with Howard Hessman again on this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, I was writing specifically for Howard, which is always a treat. And I knew Danny and John. I knew both of the Second City cast just because we were all from the same comedy world in those days. So I, I, I knew I knew them. It was all you know, kind of family. So it, it worked out that uh, I could go in and said I wasn't threatening to anybody. It did annoy me that the director missed the opportunity for a visual joke. That I wrote a visual because you know comedy writers do that. It's not all snappy dialogue, and the director just didn't, didn't get it. You know, he didn't couldn't figure out how to shoot it. I mean, I showed him, told him, I got the teamsters involved, the prop guys to say how the joke would work, and he just you know didn't get it, so he didn't shoot it. And that was part of the problem. You know, he would he had his own ideas as a director. Can I ask what the joke was? Do you remember? There's a chase in the in the uh, in a car salvage yard, and at one point, I had Danny get behind the wheel of a uh, forklift, which Danny loved because he loves to loves machinery. He's a biker, you know. He loves to operate stuff. So I, I put him behind the wheel of the forklift, and he would ram Mother's limousine from the side with the forklift. You know, come out of a side alley and impale the limo side, and then he would triumphantly pull the lever to hoist the limo into the air, and then, you know, he would, with the intention of dropping it on a scrap heap, <clears throat> but because the limo was so heavy and mom was so big, instead of the limo going up, 
he hits the lift, the, the, the forklift, the forks stay in the limo and the, and the little forklift vehicle rises up into the air along the, I, I drew it, I explained it, and I got the teamsters and the, the property guys to, to agree that they could rig that gag. It's complicated, mechanical gag. But you know, once everything's in place, you just put the actor in, do the ram, rig, rig the car. You know, anyway, anyway, he never got the joke and never got into the movie. It was never shot. Where would have uh, Belushi fit in this? Or no, what? I, I don't know. I know because the studios would just do anything with either one of them because there was. Uh, it may have been just Dan Aykroyd, but I remember when the arbitration came for the screen credit. For the first time, I got to see the short story on which it was based, which was by Bruce J. Friedman, who's a very funny guy. And I read the short story, and I said, oh, shit, you know, why didn't you give me this to adapt instead of that, you know, kind of patched-together screenplay based on the story? Because I was working off the existing screenplay. I never saw the source material. And I said, shit, the source material is really funny. You should you should have gone back to that. There was, there was still time when I started the movie. But no, they were, you know, they had what they had. They were going with it. So those movies that might have turned. And also Danny had all kinds of ideas about what he wanted to do. And when Danny's imagination runs wild, uh, you need a, either a partner like Belushi or a strong producer to say, no, Danny, we're not going to do that. But nobody told Danny about that. So he had a weird wardrobe and he had a, the, the hook, he had the hand. I mean, he had just, a lot of ideas that were pure Dan Aykroyd became part of the character in the movie. I mean, to good effect, there's a lot of people who love, who love that movie, so go figure. And it continues the Gottlieb tradition of matching leading men with their ladies in a film. It starred Barbara Bach and Dan Aykroyd and Donna, Donna Dixon. They met on Detroit. Yeah, and I really like T.K. Carter in that. Yeah, T.K. Carter was great. He seemed to have a really pretty darn juicy role in that one. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was coming off a prior film, and I, I, I was pretty confident I could write him, write him well. So it, it was, that was a again, you know, when, when you're a writer and you have actors whose you know whose voices you can duplicate, that's that's a that's a bonus. I wanted to ask you, what was your experience like working on Amazon Women on the Moon? Oh, that was great. There we had a producer-director who knew comedy. Within the budget, gave us everything we needed to get the laughs. I directed a couple of segments that weren't in the feature release, but are in the uh, DVD release. There's a Chekhov production on, on, on wires where all the actors fly. I directed that segment. I directed the nude, the, the playmate segment, and I directed the Invisible Man, which was great fun. Nude playmate one, was that the one with Russ Meyer? No, it was with uh, Monique Gabriel. She's uh, it was a, it was a parody of the Playboy videos where they would follow the Playboy of the month around. Oh, okay, and she's on the campus and completely nude. And... Yeah, and yeah, and the, the the comic conceit was that she's naked all the time. It was even you know she's in church. She's got a little hat and white gloves and white shoes, white purse, and otherwise naked. I have to tell you, the the art sale one is another one that I quote from all the time, especially, you know, I'm in Detroit. And when we were talking about selling all of the artwork to pay for the city debts, it was just like, every Van Gogh must go. Yeah, (laughs) I I directed that segment, too. The Son of Invisible Man, was that the one with Ed Begley Jr.? Yes, that that became the key art for for the movie. I loved that. Yes, oh my God, that was so good. When he's... Moving things around and those guys in the bar. Oh, 
call Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> oh, look, it's the Invisible Man again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was- I'm sorry to crack up at your jokes 20, 30 years later, but yeah. these are... Oh, no, and also, I think we got a really... We did a really good job of getting... Uh, duplicating the black and white photography and, and uh, the style of the 1930s Universal movies. Oh, man. And Ed Begley Jr., that was probably one of his best performances for me. Yeah, he was really into it. Yeah. I loved it. I'm curious, what have you been working on lately? Well, for a while, I was... Uh, if, any, if, if anybody asks me, what are you doing? I would say... Truthfully, I'm semi-retired, unemployed, or between assignments, depending on how I feel when I wake up in the morning. And uh, But currently, I'm writing a screenplay for a producer named Elliot Abbott, and it's a modern romantic comedy, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting back to work when we hang up. Uh, the, the screenplay I'm working on, I, I'll give you a title so people can, people can look for it. It's called Please Do Not Return. It's a movie. It's a romantic comedy called Please Do Not Return. You're on Facebook, obviously. Do you want people to follow you on there or anything like that? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But I'm, I, most of my time I spend on Facebook. I, you know, you, you can basically wind up spending you know half your waking hours online if you if you let yourself. So I just pretty much limited Facebook. Here is the third and final part of the interview that I did with Glenn Headley. Can you tell me about when you met Arthur Penn and how Four Friends came about? Um, I met Arthur Penn. Um, he came and saw a show that I was in. It was a very successful show at Steppenwolf, and he, you know, they asked me to come in and audition. Or wait, maybe he didn't see the show. Maybe one of his reps did or something. He read about the show. Whatever. I came in and I did. I had a monologue in that show, and I did the monologue for this open audition for him. And he really liked it, and he said, you know. I don't actually have a part for you in this movie, but I'm going to write one for you. And, and he did. Was that your first movie? I think Dr. Detroit was my first movie, wasn't it? I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it might have been Dr. Detroit. If it wasn't Dr. Detroit, it was one or the other. It's unusual to see you pop up in Dr. Detroit because obviously I know your face from other things, but you don't have a whole lot of stuff going on in the film. Was your role cut down? Yes. My role was cut down and... and um, the director was really kind and actually sent a letter to me apologizing. What were you doing? I know I had a scene there with Dan Aykroyd. You know, I, I, like I talked in the, in the scene. I mean, I think it was, as I remember it, it was funny because they were really laughing afterward and, you know, told me how good it was and stuff. And then as is typical, I mean, it was just a perfect experience to try out for something, get the part. They really like what you're doing and then you're cut. I mean, that is truly the actor's story. But that was my first lesson in, you know, what can happen. You would think if you don't know about acting that the only things that are cut are the bad things. Once you become experienced, you realize, like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're good. You can still be cut. But the other thing that I learned on that movie was that Dan Aykroyd, he was so funny in the stuff he was doing off camera. You know, he ad-libbed all the stuff when the camera wasn't on that was actually much funnier than the stuff that happened when the camera was on. That was another interesting lesson for an actor. Last but not least, here is a clip of the interview that I did with Robert Boris. So speaking of amazing pieces of cinematic art, tell me the story of Dr. Detroit. How did you get involved with that? Well, it's an interesting saga for me, actually. I had worked on uh, Some Kind of Hero with Richard Pryor. I worked on, on Some Kind of Hero. 
And and I loved Richard. We got along really well. I talked pretty well to comedy people. We had a, we had a, we had a good sense of things. Because I'm not a, a I'm not a comic skit writer. I am a character writer, and but I I also know what good drama is. So I kind of can combine both, you know. So I kind of so anyway. So I I worked on that with Michael. I, I spent you know a couple of weeks out in Hawaii with Richard Pryor and worked with him. I've spent years. I worked with when I did the thing called Disney Know with Jackie Gleason. I was the last. I was. I wrote the last script to put Jackie Gleason and Arcani together in the same movie, which was an experience for me. So I I work well with um, with comics and stuff. So so I had done that script, and Michael Preston and I got along really famously, and we did it. We really enjoyed doing it, and I had a wonderful time working on that movie and and working with Richard. It was you know it was very 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 special. Okay, so cut to sometime later after Some Kind of Hero, uh, Bernie Brillstein and Dan Aykroyd and Michael Preston are talking about doing this thing called Dr. Detroit. And there was kind of a weird, offbeat, kind of crazy, very loose script by Bruce J. Friedman. And they came to me and said, can you make sense out of this and make this? I wanted, and I, and I said, talk to Michael and, and we agreed what we wanted to do was, was a, a modern version of bringing a baby. We wanted to do, you know, a crazy, you know, one night uh, run around like crazy situation, whatever it may be, short, short span of time, uh, and do it like bringing up baby. So it's sophisticated and witty, and that was that was our uh, that was our plan. And I met with Aykroyd and Bernie Goldstein, and they were all on board. They loved it, and, and I I enjoyed Aykroyd a lot, and um, and I and I had a great love for Bernie Goldstein, a great and tremendous affection for him. So I began to take the script, and it basically was a page one rewrite. I, I kept just basically the concept of a, of a college professor who uh, gets involved with hookers. And then I tried to, to get into the double life situation and tried to make it like he's leading a, a, a double life. And, and I tried to – wrote some very witty dialogue and stuff and, and had a very witty situation with, with, with Aykroyd. And in fact, I remember going over to Aykroyd's house and sometimes to, to Pressman's house and re- working through scenes together and reading him. We were having a great freaking time, in a great, great time. Then we met with MGM, and MGM was going to make the movie, and it was greenlit, and everything was great, and we went and we talked to them, and it was, it was just, I loved the script, I loved Dan Aykroyd, I loved Michael Preston. Everything was terrific, and I was really proud of the work, and I was, and we put together, I think, a very sophisticated, clever, witty film. Okay, so... Then MGM started getting into some troubles. Um, there were some problems going on. There were there were money problems. They weren't they didn't know what to make. We're gonna shut down. We have this. We have that. Nobody knew what was going on, and everything was on hold. And so while we were sitting there and going like, well, maybe this movie's on hold. Maybe we're not making it. And the people I know over Paramount, because I had done some kind of hero for Paramount, they put me together with uh, Joel Silver and Larry Gordon, uh, you know, top flight producers, and they had a project called Forty Eight Hours. And and Burt Reynolds was attached at the time, and he was going to play in, in 40 hours. And so I started. Uh, they they decided to bring me in and say, you know, because I had a strong relationship with everybody at Paramount, including the executives. And they said, you want to, you know, do this movie? And I said, well, I guess we're sitting there waiting on what the fuck is going to happen with them um, uh, with Dr. Detroit. So I said, sure. So I went to Florida. I spent time with Burt and at Jupiter, Florida, at his uh, his house and at his uh, at the theater. And we talked about what he wanted to see in the movie. And it was clearly different from the movie that it became. And I worked on a draft, which was quite different from the movie it became. 
it was about a cop and who had a, 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 a he had a tiger and he ran around into Chicago with a tiger <laughs> at his side and it was it was a bizarre movie it was a bizarre movie but it was kind of funny and it was it was fun and and we worked on the script and we're getting along pretty well everything is fine and then for some reason that slows down too something wrong bird or you want to do something else I forget what the reasons were but I had done a first draft and everybody was kind of happy with it and every, and so it was kind of we were in a cool place but the movie was basically put on hold. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, things changed, whether it was Bert or whatever it is, and suddenly, I get a call from, from the executives at Opama, and I, I knew them all pretty well. Um, Don Simpson, who you know, later died at a young age, uh, overdosed. Uh, Don Simpson, Don Steele, who also died young. Um, Jack Katzenberg. I knew these people really well. And all of a sudden, something happened that Eddie Murphy had gotten huge same on Saturday Night Live. And they decided that they were going to go back to 48 hours. Now Walter Hill was involved. And it looks like they were bringing in Nick Nolte, who was also a big star, and Eddie Murphy, when he had a brief amount of time to make a movie, uh, just off of Saturday Night Live. And there was a pending Writers Guild strike coming. I think that was looking pretty positive it was going to be a strike. So they wanted me in really fast to do a, basically a new script based on a Walter Hill idea and a, a way to play it and pick up some of the f- stuff that I had done and the other draft, whatever it is. And essentially it was the movie that you know, the famous 48 hours that it became. And and Walter had done a draft on it that they didn't want crazy about, but it was pretty close to what the movie you, you that we all know and love. And they asked me to come in and to work with Walter. And I met with Walter, and the movie was definitely a go movie. They were, it, 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 they were up against the wall. They had Eddie Murphy for X amount of days. They had Nick Dolby for X amount of days, and they were looking in the eyeballs of, of a strike. <clears throat> so there was no question that they were making the movie. And, um, and so I met with Walter Hill, and what happened was some people can do it, some can't. I'm one of those who can't. Walter basically said to me, okay, I'm going to do scene 1, 15, 23, 35. I want you to do scene 7, 16, 59, 83. In other words, just do, you know, you do these scenes, I do these scenes kind of thing. And I, I am just not the kind of writer who does that real well. I don't know how to, you know, jump into a script that I don't really know, that I haven't really worked through in my head, and basically jump from scene to scene and just make that scene good or make that scene good. I'm not good at that. Some some people are great at it, and I'm, but I'm not one of those who's really good at it. But I tried. I was here. They were paying me a lot of money, and I, and I was trying. And while I'm in the middle of doing this, although I wasn't particularly happy about it, while I'm in the middle of doing this, suddenly I get a call from Bernie Wilson and, and Michael Pressman that MGM is kind of closing up shop, and, and Dr. Troy has moved over to Universal. They're going to make the movie over Universal definitely. Guaranteed. Can I come back and... Uh, and work with Dan and work with everybody and make the movie over Universal. So, you know, uh, that was a real dilemma for me. Here I was working with Freddie Murphy and did Nick Monty in 48 Hours and Joel Silver and Larry Gordon and all that shit, you know, and Paramount. And my friends at Paramount who were the, the executives, the president and everybody else. And now I'm being offered to, to work back on my, which I would call my beloved Dr. Detroit. So it was a real conflict. The agency said to me, Go and stick with, you've got Nick Dolte, you've got Eddie Murphy, this is going to be a good movie, stick with this one. It's, it's, it's going really soon, stick with this one. And I said, but wait a minute, I, 
I really created this Dr. Detroit. I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm like mostly connected to it, and I'm not really happy about this work situation. Anyway, we had this conversation. <clears throat> I had a decision to make, and I decided to ask Larry Gordon if, if he mind, didn't mind if I went off to Universal to make Dr. Detroit. And he was very understanding. So was Joe Silver, and, and everybody was, was fine with it. And um, so I left. Probably not the smartest decision I've ever made in my life. And because uh, no matter anybody that even touched 48 hours, uh, ultimately went on to greater glory. And it turned out to be a wonderful picture. I'm not sure I would have helped it. I can't, I can't tell that. Um, so, uh, but I went over to Universal. I started to work on the strip. And then, I, and then my heart was broken again because basically it kind of, it basically it, it got very, it, it kind of gross. It was a gross out comedy. It got really, you know, uh, over the top. It wasn't a witty, sophisticated comedy anymore. It was just, down and dirty and pretty, you know, nose on. And so it was a different kind of movie. It turned out not to be a happy experience for me. Um, I helped where I could, you know, I stayed with it as long as I could. And I gave them a bunch of scenes. And, you know, look, I think there's some very funny things in it. I think Dan Aykroyd was a lot of fun in it. And it was broad comedy. But, you know, and there's nothing wrong with broad comedy. It just, you know, my initial vision of it, was not a broad comedy. It was a sophisticated, witty, you know, um, with a lot of clever fun in it, a la Bringing Up Baby. That's what the movie I wanted to make. And it went a, a little bit, you know, kind of broad, and more, you know, in a different way. And, and it was fine. The movie was okay. Um, but um, uh, I was not the happiest camper on board. It's just a, a, a balls-out, entertaining um, a, a movie, a little bit too extreme for me, but a lot of people love it. And, and look, I was, I, I was, I was happy that it was, uh, it was made and I was happy that my name was on it. And, and I think there's a lot of good things in it. We are back, and we were talking about Dr. Detroit. So I had no idea before starting to do the research on this that Dr. Detroit was based off of a short story, loosely based off of a short story called Detroit Abe by Bruce J. Friedman. And Bruce J. Friedman, in case people aren't familiar with his name, he, well, he wrote a lot of stuff, and he actually uh, wrote the short story that The Heartbreak Kid was based Mm. off of. He wrote the screenplay for Stir Crazy. He uh, wrote the book that The Lonely Guy was based off of. He wrote the screenplay for Splash. So he, he had his fingers in a lot of stuff. Tried to get a hold of him. He was born in 1930, so he's kind of getting up there. I wasn't able to find a good contact for him, but uh, his short fiction that I've read, I, I read the Detroit Abe story and other things in this uh, collection. Fantastic stuff. Really good stuff. Um, and the Detroit Abe story, it's it's interesting because it's basically like the, the first I don't know, 15 minutes of Dr. Detroit. Cause it's basically just this story of this real schlubby guy who teaches college. He teaches three courses in irony, different forms of irony through literature. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> he ends up going to a Indian place. He likes to. That's one of his only vices is that he goes out to uh, eat, and he's got a very strong stomach, so he can handle like getting you know Filipino food and Indian food. And he goes out and he sees this couple. There's this black guy and this woman who has a very, um, very admirable behind that uh, Abramowitz, our main character, is very into, and. For some reason, when the waiter asks the couple what they want for dinner, he leans over and recommends the tandoori chicken to them. And then later, when the lady leaves, uh, the black guy, whose name is Smooth Walker, calls him over to the table and they have a drink together. And he says, you know, thank you. I really didn't know what to order at the particular time and you really saved my bacon because in this whole business that I'm in, being cool is very important and I didn't want to look not cool in front of my lady because there's other pimps out there who are vying for them to be, you know, wor work for them, including a pimp named French Fries. So French Fries is the rival in this one, not mom's. And then, what? Um, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Abramowitz ends up paying for both of their drinks. And then um, there's another thing that Smooth Walker kind of does to him where like he ends up paying for something. And then at the end of the night, he's like, you know, you notice that you paid for my drink and you notice like, I don't know, you paid for my cab or whatever. And uh, Abramowitz is like, yeah, I did notice that. He's like, but yet I have all kinds of money. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. He's like, well, wouldn't you consider that irony? So that was a really nice little moment in there. And then eventually Abramowitz reads about all of these pimps that were busted and Smooth ends up calling him they meet again and he shows him all of this money and he's like listen i need to leave town i want to leave you in charge of my girls this is a hundred thousand dollars i can make this in a week so just think about that and abramowitz is like i make fourteen thousand dollars a year being a professor i wonder if i could do this and he starts you know having this whole moral dilemma and all this stuff even though the morality of prostitution doesn't play into it at all which i've kind of kind of appreciated the the story ends with him calling up Smooth Walker, and he hesitates for a second. And you know, Smooth is like, "Who is this? Who is this?" And finally, Abramowitz goes, "This is Detroit Abe," and that's the end of the story. So that takes us kind of to where Smooth Howard Hessman leaves town. You know, he, he doesn't give cliff a, a choice he basically thrusts him into the life but i did like the short story it was really really well done and like phew, 10 pages or something like that that sounds really great and um though now i feel sad that we were robbed of a pimp called french fries in this film yes <laughs> <laughs> the hell <laughs> it uh you know mike the fact that you you found this short story and read it i think it's just further proof that you are the james brown of film podcasts Come on. <laughs> except, except, except you're not high on, on angel dust, presumably. <laughs> I'm just high on life. <laughs> and I don't know if you, did you catch it at the end, Heather, where he's like, and he thrusts him into the life. That was kind of like a little prostitution angle that you took with that wording. Very proud of that. Very nice job. Oh. That's why I uh, have uh, gotten all those Rondo awards over the years. <laughs> oh, you don't get to eat cake in a beige room. You're you know what? You get you get a better award because you get you get listeners that love the show and you get awesome co-hosts like Aaron. And you get uh -huh. to talk to Glenn Headley about Dr. Detroit. I mean, hell, I would right. I'd take that over an award any day. Not the Aykroyd, though, huh? No, no. I've tried Aykroyd so much. And I, I will put this out there mm -hmm. because um, just because 
karma has a way of getting back to people. Dan Eckert's person, not a very nice person at all. And I have asked at least twice a year for the last five years about interviewing Dan Aykroyd. And even when he was in the throes of uh, going through and, and really promoting the Ghostbusters remake, since he was the producer of it and everything and had the cameo appearance, still wasn't able to, I'm even asking, like, can I interview him about his stupid Crystal Skull vodka? No, nothing. I could never break through the Aykroyd. And I just don't get that whatsoever. Wow. That's got to be the weirdest thing about the profession, though, is like who who you can get. I know we talked about this before, but just like the the actors and artists you're able to get and the ones that flake on you. So hopefully maybe Dan Aykroyd himself will listen to this and be like, what the hell, and get a new person. Either that or he's going to be like, Dr. Detroit, too. Ha <laughs> ha, yes. Get French fries in there. You know, I've heard it on your podcast before. You've tried to get him and it didn't work out. I don't understand... Why? He always seems, I mean, while I don't necessarily like some of his creative choices, especially after 1998 or so, he he seems like a genuinely nice guy. Like, I, I've never heard anything wrong or bad or off-putting right. about him at all. It's, it's kind of surprising to me that he wouldn't be more open to it, because he is a guy that loves to talk about his past, you know? I, I'm surprised that you went all the way up to 98, by the way, because I was <laughs> thinking today about some of the movies because he used to be able to carry an entire film mm -hmm. like dr detroit though he tended to work more in pairs you know we talked about the blues brothers we talked about neighbors even when you get into trading places which was the same year so he's bouncing off of uh eddie murphy in that one and then of course with ghostbusters it's more of a, a team effort in that but then even when you get into like spies like us and dragnet even the couch trip and uh, what was the uh, loose cannons in each of those, he has a very strong co-star. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he was, uh, um, did I mention the great actors? Even in, in all of those, he had somebody else that he was working with. So it wasn't like he was the, the lone person like he, I would say that he pretty much has to carry Dr. Detroit. I mean, he is the, the titular doctor and he plays the two roles and it's kind of almost like a, a flip side of trading places where he, you know, he, he's both the yuppie and then the homeless guy. And in this, he's, he's kind of the yuppie and then the pimp, but, um, you know, he doesn't have the Eddie Murphy character to kind of counter that. Well, 98's when he did Blues Brothers 2000. And for me, that was that was the heartbreaking <laughs> one. Because I'm like, no, why did you have to do it? You went too far. You just went too far. Some people would say, like, you know, Exit to Eden was a little too much. Oh. I blame Rosie O'Donnell for that one. I thought he was fantastic in Gross Point Blank. And those yes. were the roles yeah. that I liked when he would kind of show up and stuff like, um, I mean, how what uh, Driving Miss Daisy mm -hmm. and My Girl. I mean, I, he really, once he started to get into a little bit more dramatic roles, and I thought he could really play dramatic roles very well. I'm just surprised he hasn't done more of it. You know, there were so many times where it was like, okay, now it's time for Robin Williams to break out and be this dramatic, dramatic actor. It never felt like either Aykroyd had the opportunity or he took that chance and kind of put him out there, uh, put himself out there into that kind of a role. I would love to see Dan Aykroyd do more dramatic stuff too. I'd, I'd love to see him, you know, be a lead again. I think people have kind of forgotten just how talented this guy is. I mean, I think those of us who grew up with, you know, watching Dan Aykroyd 
we haven't forgotten, but I mean, there may be, I mean, there's probably like a, a newer generation. They know who he is, but it's, you know, they, they know Ghostbusters, but that's, mm-hmm. but they don't realize the depth of, of what, of his work. And, uh, I do love Dan Aykroyd. And in fact, I mean, when I was little, I used to like do the whole two wild and crazy guys, which we won't even, we won't even go to how inappropriate probably sounded for a little like six year old me to be all like, you know, talking about tight pants, but <laughs> that gives us great bullshit. <laughs> I was, that's so innocent. But, uh, but I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's great. And, um, I think he's still got it. I mean, when you see him in interviews, he's, um, he's one of those people who does have like a really like, like noted personality like you you know you're kind of drawn to him and i think he still has that charisma and um i'd like to see it better utilized than you know a cameo in ghostbusters remake i mean come on he's better than that he's he's smarter than that too dragnet is one of my all-time favorite comedies believe it or not it's one of my all-time favorites and I, I love that movie. I, you know, he was involved in getting that made and writing it, finding a tone. He's really the first one that took that. Uh, let's take a serious TV show and let's kind of like put a little comedy into it and just change it up, which is what they did completely with Dragnet and made it just a, a bonkers movie. You know, he was really the first guy that that pushed things that way. And Ghostbusters, you know, he was involved in the writing of that. He's a very talented guy and kind of. Maybe he tried a little too hard at resurrecting his own past, and that's got him a lot of ill will from fans, but he's still talented. I mean, even as, like you said, a dramatic actor, he was really good in dramatic roles. I wish he would do more of whatever. I just, I really miss seeing the guy on my screen. I kind of wonder if he's just, because I know he's gotten a lot... Uh, more involved in music like he does a radio show or at least I know he did as of last year I don't know if he's still hosted but he did like yeah hosting uh, a blues radio show and um, I want to say it's affiliated with House of Blues I could be wrong on that but you know he's been a big blues fan and supporter for years upon years and so I don't know if maybe his heart's just truly more into music and vodka than <laughs> <laughs> well and the supernatural he's also really into like alien stuff i mean he was kind of the host of a almost like a canadian i don't want to say believe it or not but uh like a paranormal activity type of a canadian show you know and it, he was the uh more almost the stone-faced host of this about you know unbelievable occurrences that have happened so he really got into that for a while big time and sneakers mother on sneakers Eh, another mom reference there um (laughs) (laughs) he he was great and he's obviously still friends with fran drescher because i know if you if you look at his biography he's popped up on her like almost all of her tv shows except for the nanny and she's had several more and he keeps popping up. So they're obviously still friends. I mean, he, he's been married to Donna Dixon ever since they met on Dr. Detroit. To me, all these things say he's a good guy. He's a really nice guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, Hollywood doesn't keep relationships together that long unless you happen to be a good person, I think. It's funny to look at her filmography compared to his, where like she would show up in things like the Twilight Zone movie, which he was also in. Of course, Spies Like Us, she shows up in. So it's like uh, they, they, and even the couch trip, they would uh, work together quite a bit, which was a nice thing to do, you know. And it, and it doesn't seem like it's necessarily like you know, if you want me, you want my wife didn't feel like stunt casting to me. Yeah, well, and plus she was Garth's uh, dream girl in Wayne's World. Oh, God, that scene is awesome <laughs> when they start playing Dreamweaver. <laughs> so good. Oh, I love that movie. 
So yeah, no. So well, hopefully, like this will be a call to the you know, to Dan Aykroyd appear in the projection booth and do some more acting because you know you're terrific, sir. You are absolutely. I love you, Dan. And this movie rocks. Make Wrath of Mom. Let's do it. <laughs> we'll do a Kickstarter. We'll do a Kickstarter for Doctor Detroit too. <laughs> and get French fries in there. <laughs> oh. You can do a tie into a fast food chain so easily. <laughs> I'm looking out for you, Danny. Looking out. <laughs> We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. When a thing turns into its opposite, when love becomes hate, or life turns into death, it's explosive. over was glorious and overwhelming. It was absolutely addictive. So, how is it working at the funeral home? It's a, it's a full-time job. I've never met anyone like you. I've never done this before. Why do you need to know all the details? I'm just curious. That's all anyone would be. This is a record of everything I've done in the last two weeks. This is not going to help you understand me. It's like looking into the sun without going blind. And I know what I have to do now. I just, I don't know what to do. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Lynn Stopkowicz's Kissed, where I'll be joined by fan favorite Rob St. Mary. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Aaron. Aaron, what is keeping your pimp hands strong these days, sir? My pimp hands strong. Uh, well, I'm doing two two main podcasts, which are The Hollywood Outsider. As for every week, we talk about movies and TV. And it's kind of an irreverent podcast. That's at thehollywoodoutsider.com. And then the other main one is Remake This Movie Right where uh, we take a classic movie that's possibly being remade and remake it, how the fans would do it, and then interject a a movie parody trailer at the end of what our finished product is. And that's RemakeThisMovieRight.com. And Heather, what are you up to when you're not running a stable in Chicago? Trying to keep my pimp hands strong. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm actually currently knee and head deep in wrapping up volume one of the Bizarro Film Encyclopedia with John Skip, uh, as well as putting the finishing touches on an article about the rich and very underrated solo career of Black Sabbath drummer Bill Ward. Ooh. 
Well, thank you guys for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I am not running late. Every donation and every rating helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.